ready to go? Okay, let's start up. If we could uh, just have to press this. Okay. Cell injury is the first topic. Very important. Key issues in cell injury deal with hypoxia, getting into things like uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, cyanide poisoning, and things of that nature. And probably the next biggest thing would be apoptosis is a hot topic right now, and free radicals, so we'll uh, go through those. And then uh, growth alterations, that's big time, okay, atrophy, hyperplasia, that kind of stuff. So those are the things we'll concentrate on in this chapter. First thing is terms. When I said hypoxia, the first thing that should have come through your mind is inadequate oxygenation of tissue, which is basically the same definition as shock, okay? Now, then remember, why do we need oxygen? We need oxygen for the oxidative phosphorylation pathway. That's where we get ATP from. That's in the mitochondria. In fact, it's specifically in the inner mitochondrial membrane is where the electron transport system is called oxidative phosphorylation. Remember, the last reaction is oxygen to receive the electron. So oxygen's an electron acceptor, as you recall. Protons are being kicked off that electron transport system, eventually end up going back into the membrane and forming ATP. It's just that simple. That's why we need oxygen. So basically, it all boils down to we need oxygen for ATP. Okay, and the ATP is mainly generated in the mitochondria. Pretty, pretty simple concept. I know you haven't had biochemistry. You fortunately have the best biochemistry teacher around, Dr. Hansen. She's the one that wrote the notes on biochemistry, and I think they're pretty good. All right, some oxygen terms. You need to know oxygen content. You may have had this from Passel already since he did respiratory. This is important because it's important for you to understand what carries oxygen. Okay, and this formula actually goes through that. It's, well, you forget the number, that's irrelevant. It's the hemoglobin, which is the most important of the three things, times the oxygen saturation, which a lot of you don't understand, plus the partial pressure of arterial oxygen. Okay, so these are the three main things that carry oxygen in our blood, hemoglobin, and then on that hemoglobin, the oxygen attached to the heme group, that's called oxygen saturation, and then the amount of oxygen that's actually dissolved in plasma, that's the partial pressure of arterial oxygen. Okay? If you want to just a, a visual of what oxygen saturation is, this is a red blood cell. Remember, there's four heme groups. Iron has to be plus two, if you recall. If it's plus three, cannot, cannot carry oxygen. And so if all four heme groups on uh, on, a, on hemoglobin are occupied by oxygen on every one of the red blood cells, the oxygen saturation is 100%. So it's the oxygen in the red blood cell attached to the heme group. That's oxygen saturation. That's what you measure with a pulse oximeter. The partial pressure of oxygen is the oxygen dissolved in your plasma. Okay. So how does the oxygen flow? It flows from the alveoli through the interface. It dissolves in the plasma, increases the partial pressure of oxygen. That's what this is. It diffuses through the red blood cell membrane and attaches to the heme groups on the uh, red blood cell, on the hemoglobin. That's your oxygen saturation. So you should therefore understand that if the partial pressure of oxygen is decreased, what has to happen to the oxygen saturation, please? It has to be decreased. Because where did it get its oxygen from? The amount that was dissolved in plasma. That should be perfectly obvious to you. Okay? 
So those are your terms, guys, that you must know to understand tissue hypoxia. Okay, one of the first causes of tissue hypoxia is ischemia. This is another definition. Ischemia, recall, is a decrease in arterial blood flow. Not venous, arterial. Now, the most common cause of ischemia is a thrombus in a muscular artery because that's the most common cause of death in the United States, in my cardiac infarction. That's a classic example of ischemia. Got a thrombus, that's blocking arterial blood flow, producing tissue hypoxia, right? And so that's the most common cause of ischemia is the thrombus uh, in a muscular artery. But how about a decrease in cardiac output for whatever reason? A hypovolemia, cardiogenic shock, would that qualify as tissue hypoxia, as uh, ischemia? Sure because you have a decrease in arterial blood flow. Okay. The second uh, most common cause of tissue hypoxia is hypoxemia. As a lot of books and a lot of students think that hypoxia and hypoxemia are the same. No, 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 no. Hypoxia is the big term. Hypoxemia is a cause of hypoxia. They're not the same. Hypoxemia deals with the partial pressure of arterial oxygen, which I've already just defined for you. That's the oxygen dissolved in plasma, arterial plasma. That's the partial pressure of oxygen. When that is decreased, that is called hypoxemia. Okay. Now, you've had PASO. You've had him for respiratory. I know you haven't had him for cardiovascular. He's outstanding. I know everything he teaches. Okay. He's a good friend of mine. And so I know that he's taught you this. He's taught you ventilation, perfusion, and diffusion. <laughs> he's taught you the alveolar arterial gradient, the AA gradient. He's taught you that already, so it's not necessary to have to repeat those things, even though we will. <laughs> okay? Why? Because some people, it goes in one ear and out the other. If that's you, then what you do is you put a little, little plug in one ear, and then it stays in there. Okay? To make sure the ear that's open is faced towards me, and it'll just stay in your brain. What he may not have talked about is respiratory acidosis to, to, to the, to, in this regard, in terms of hypoxemia. It's Dalton's law, guys. So some of the partial pressures of the gas must equal 760 at, uh, at uh, atmospheric pressure. We have oxygen, CO2, and nitrogen. Nitrogen remains constant. So when you retain CO2, carbon dioxide, that's respiratory acidosis. You already knew that. But what has to happen to the PO2 when the CO2 goes up? It has to go down. It has to. It's not, it's, not a, it's not, well, I think I'm going to go down. No, you're going down because you still have to come out with 760. So every time you have respiratory acidosis from any cause, any cause, you have hypoxemia. You have a low PO2, arterial PO2. Have to. CO2 goes up, what goes down? And vice versa. CO2 goes down, respiratory alkalosis, what happens to PO2? Goes up. Has to. Okay, so there's that inverse relationship. Now, you know, uh, in terms of ventilation defects, probably the best example of a ventilation defect is respiratory distress syndrome, another name, hyaline membrane disease. The adult variety is called adult respiratory distress syndrome. And that's producing a ventilation defect, which you already know about because Castle taught you. But you've lost ventilation to the alveoli, but what do you still have? Perfusion. So you have no ventilation, but you have perfusion. What have you created? An intrapulmonary shunt. You all know that. How are you going to recognize it on an exam? Very simple. You'll have a patient with hypoxemia. 
They say they gave him 100% oxygen for 20 minutes, and the PO2 didn't increase. I mean, ah, what does it have? What does it mean? It means you got a shot. <laughs> I mean, that's so simple. The student sitting there, oh, I went, oh, what's going on here? Never heard about this. I mean, come on. I mean, it's not hard. They didn't give them oxygen. Well, that's a possibility. They thought they were, but they didn't. But that's kind of reading into the question. Okay, so that's how you can tell whether you have a shunt going on there. You give 100% oxygen, the PO2 doesn't go up. Come on. There's a massive ventilation defect there. And if it's a little dude, it's hyaline membrane disease. If it's an adult, it's adult respiratory distress syndrome, period. Okay, we have perfusion defects. Okay, that means you knock off blood flow. Well, you know the most common perfusion defect, don't you? I could have got it on the stinking plane coming here because it was over two hours. Pulmonary embolus. That's going to be a board question, guys. It's all the radio all over the place. You know, prolonged flights and sitting down and not getting up. Why? They tell you to sit down. <laughs> you can't get up. It's choppy weather. You know, I got to go pee. No, sit. Okay? Well, you're sitting there. You get some stasis in your deep veins of your leg. Get a little propagation of a clot. And five days later or three days later, you throw off an embolus. That's a perfusion defect. So now we have ventilation, but we have no perfusion. That's increasing what? Come on, though. You're going to do pass so poor bad if you don't uh, give me the answer. That's space. So perfusion defects produce an increase in dead space. Ventilation defects produce intrapulmonary shunts. Very simple stuff. Now, if you give oxygen, 100% oxygen to someone with a perfusion defect, you will get the PO2 up. Why? Because not, that not every single vessel in the lung is, is, uh, is not perfused, so other areas of the lung can make up for the difference. So that you can easily separate, then, a ventilation from a perfusion defect by giving oxygen, 100%. If it doesn't go up, it's a ventilation defect. You've got intrapulmonary shunting. If it eventually increases, then you know you've got a, you got a, a perfusion defect, a dead space problem. The third thing is a diffusion defect. That's where you have something in the interface that oxygen can't get through. Like what? Like fibrosis. Probably the best example is sarcoidosis, a restrictive lung disease. Oxygen has enough trouble getting through the stupid membranes. You put fibrosis there, it really has a problem. We have pulmonary edema. How's oxygen get through all that crap? Can't. So they have a diffusion defect. Or just plain old fluid, like in heart failure. You know, when you get that initial um, uh, dyspnea in a patient with heart failure because you activated the J, J as a jerk, J reflex, uh, innervated by the 10th nerve. With fluid or anything innervates that J receptor, what happens is you get dyspnea. Okay, that's kind of like you're trying to take a breath, but you can't take a full breath. That's because you stimulated the J receptor and you can't take that full breath because it produces dyspnea. That's because you have fluid in that, in that interstitium of the lung and, and, are, and are irritating the J receptor. That's a board question, too. Everything I've said so far is on boards. Okay, so these are the four things that produce hypoxemia, okay? All of which you already know, I think. But I'm just putting it into a different con context than maybe Dr. Paso did. We're not done with hypoxia yet. You can have hemoglobin-related problems causing hypoxia. Of course, anemia would be a classic one, wouldn't it? 
And if you looked at oxygen content, you can then they said, you know, you know, and, uh, you know, what would you expect in a patient with anemia? And one of the classic things that students always fall for is a decrease in PO2. They think that you have hypoxemia when you have anemia. Of course you don't. Don't you have normal gas exchange in a patient with anemia? Sure. So the PO2 should be normal. The oxygen saturation should be normal. But what's decreased? Hemoglobin. That's what anemia is. You still have normal respiration, so the PO2 is normal. The oxygen saturation is normal. Common mistake. But, boy, you get a 5-gram hemoglobin. You don't have a whole lot of oxygen to give the tissue, do you? Because you have decreased hemoglobin. You might have a normal oxygen saturation, a normal PO2, but you only have 5 grams of hemoglobin. You ain't carrying a whole lot. So you have tissue hypoxia. That's why they have exertional dyspnea when you have anemia. Exercise intolerance. Because you have tissue hypoxia from a decrease in hemoglobin. Then we get into our little friends carbon monoxide and, and methemoglobinemia. Carbon monoxide is on every board. You all know that. You just have to recognize how they're going to how they're going to present it. Well, the big one is usually a, a heater in the winter time. Uh, you know these little room heaters oftentimes have combustible material in them, and you can get carbon monoxide from that. You're in a closed space with a room heater. That's the favorite one that they ask. Automobile exhaust, of course, is another one, but another big one's a house fire. In fact, there's two things that produce tissue hypoxia in a house fire. One is carbon monoxide poisoning because of the few of the combustible things. The other one's cyanide poisoning because upholstery is made out of polyurethrane products. Okay, when there's heat, uh, you get uh, cyanide gas given off. So patients that come out of house fires commonly have both carbon monoxide and cyanide poisoning. That's very important. So you get two for one. Now remember, carbon monoxide is very, very diffusible. It has a very high affinity for hemoglobin. Okay, but this oftentimes also causes confusions with students. Okay, what does it mean? Basically, it means that the problem is going to be oxygen saturation is going to be decreased because it's sitting on the heme group rather than oxygen. I mean, you can recite for me a 210 times greater affinity for hemoglobin, and then you don't know what it means. What it means is it's sitting on the heme group instead of oxygen. That's what it means. That means oxygen saturation is decreased. Period. That's the only thing that's decreased. Hemoglobin is certainly normal. It's not anemia. And the oxygen does, and the PO2, the amount dissolved in uh, oxygen dissolved in plants, are totally normal. The problem is, is that when it when it diffuses into the red blood cell, carbon monoxide sitting on its place. It's like someone taking your seat during a break, and you come back and someone's there. All right. Every time you see that happen, from now on, you say, "Hey, you carbon monoxide. I'm I'm 100% oxygen. I'm displacing you now." Okay. So then you get two for one for that. You know how to treat it with 100% oxygen. And you know that if someone's sitting in your seat, it's decreasing oxygen saturation. And then, unfortunately, you recall that when you have a decrease in oxygen saturation, you have clinical evidence of cyanosis. You all knew that too. When they say cyanosis, basically what they're saying is, is that you have a decrease in oxygen saturation. That's what gives you cyanosis. But why don't you see that in carbon monoxide poisoning? Because of that red pigment. That cherry red pigment masks it. That's what makes it such a hard diagnosis to make. The most common symptom that was on board is headache. That's the first symptom of carbon monoxide poisoning is headache. It's all in your notes. 
And that hemoglobin is very interesting. Uh, I think it was unfair the way they asked it the first time. Lately, they've been asking the Datsone question. First, what is that hemoglobin? It's iron plus three, not plus two. So if iron is plus three on the heme group, then oxygen can't bind to it. So the only thing that's screwed up with met hemoglobin poisoning is oxygen saturation again. Okay, That's because the iron is plus three rather than plus two. But oxygen saturation is decreased. If, they're lu if, they're, if you're lucky, they may give you a history in a patient with met hemoglobinemia that they draw blood and it's chocolate colored. That's because there's no oxygen on the, on the, uh, on the heme groups. The PO2 is totally normal. The hemoglobin concentration is totally normal. It's the oxygen saturation. So in other words, the seat's empty, but you can't sit in it, okay, and stay there because it's plus three, okay, not plus two. That's why red blood cells have a methemoglobin reductase system. Okay, you'll find out where that's located in biochemistry, but it's basically right where you make NADH, about halfway down in the glycolytic cycle. Right there is where the methemoglobin reductase system is, and it can convert by reduction, can reduce plus three back to plus two. The question that there's two questions that they use for methemoglobinemia. One was a dude coming out of the Rocky Mountains, and he was cyanotic. They gave him oxygen, and he was still cyanotic. I guess you have to just really read in between the lines because that's all the history they give you. Probably drinking water up there in the mountains, and the water oftentimes up in the mountains is loaded with nitrites and nitrates. These are oxidizing agents, and what they do is they oxidize hemoglobin, and so the iron becomes plus three rather than plus two. The tip-off was the fact that giving oxygen didn't correct the cyanosis, okay? And you had to arrive at the fact that it was probably a methemoglobinemia. And then they wanted to know what the treatment was, which is IV methylene blue. Uh, an ancillary but not the primary treatment is vitamin C. Vitamin C, you recall, is a reducing agent. But that's not your main treatment. It's intravenous methylene blue. The, the most recent one for methemoglobinemia was Dapsone. Dapsone, as you know, is used in treating leprosy. It's in your high yield. Don't worry about it. You'll see it. Dapsone. Dapsone is a sulfur drug. Sulfur and nitro drugs, guys. Sulfur and nitro drugs do two things. I want you to tie this together. One is they produce methemoglobin. Two is that they have the potential for producing hemolytic anemia and glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency. So when they talk about hemolysis and G6PD deficiency, they're talking about oxidizing agents, okay? causing an increase in peroxide, which destroys the red blood cell. And it's interesting, the same drugs that can produce hemolysis and G6PD deficiency are nitro and sulfur drugs, okay? And they're also the same kind of drugs that produce methemoglobin. So it's possible when, uh, when you have uh, exposure to Dapsone or Primaquin or trimethoprim sulfamethoxol or nitro drugs, nitroglycerin, nitroprusside, whatever, you can have a combination of the hemolytic anemia, G6PD deficiency, and methemoglobinemia because they're oxidizing agents. Do you understand that? Okay. Very common, by the way, to see methemoglobinemia in HIV. Why? Great board question. Come on. Because they're on trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for treatment of what? Come on. Pneumocystis carini. There you go. 
So what is the potential complication of that therapy, please? Methemoglobinemia. Right? That's an integration, guys. That's the kind of stuff the boards is made up of. I feel so sorry for the boards people, don't you? <laughs> Not really. More, more, more. Okay. It's all on your notes. The more you read, the higher the score. Pretty simple. The less you read, the lower the score. Very, very simple. Straight log. Straight up. Guaranteed. Okay. Get through the notes if you can. Okay, and then we have shift uh, curves, and I'm sure uh, Paso went through this, so oftentimes done biochemistry. What kind of curve do you want? Uh, outside of the plate. No, we're talking left and right shifted curves. What kind do you want? You want a right shifted. You want to have hemoglobin that has decreased affinity for oxygen, so it wants to release oxygen to tissue. That's what you want. Okay, what's going to make it go that way? Well, that famous compound, name it, 2,3-BPG, bisphosphoglycerate. Okay, what else? Fever does. What else? Low pH, which is acidosis. Right shifts the curve, that is correct. Okay, now what about, oh, what's another thing that does that was recently on boards? High altitude. When you go into high altitude, it right shifts your curve. So you'll have a respiratory alkalosis. You have to hyperventilate in high altitude. Because why? You just told me a little while ago. What did I say happens when you decrease CO2 respiratory alkalosis? What happens to PO2? Ah, goes up. Isn't that what happens when you're in high altitude? Ha, ha, ha. And then what else happens? You right shift your curve because high altitude causes an increase in synthesis of 2,3-BPG. That's a board question. That's how we can get oxygen up there. Hmm, very interesting. I think so, too. So what left shifts? Well, carbon monoxide left shifts, methemoglobin left shifts, hemoglobin F, fetal hemoglobin left shifts, decrease in 2,3-BPG. What's the opposite of acidosis? Alkalosis, there you go. Alkalosis left shift. That's bad. That's going to produce tissue hypoxia. So we have two, a double whammy with carbon monoxide so far. We got it decreasing oxygen saturation, and second, we have it left shifting the oxygen dissociation curve. That's not too cool. We got one more to go for carbon monoxide, don't we? Okay, so those are hemoglobin related problems. Then we have the problems related to the oxidative pathway. Now, probably the most important one is cytochrome oxidase, which is the last enzyme before it transfers the electron to oxygen, which is an electron acceptor. And of course, there's two things. Well, I remember it's the three C's. Cytochrome oxidase is the first one. And the next one is cyanide and carbon monoxide. Inhibit cytochrome oxidase. So just remember the three C's. Cytochrome oxidase, carbon monoxide, cyanide. We'll like each other. Okay. So we have a third thing for carbon monoxide producing tissue hypoxia. It blocks cyanide. I mean, it blocks cytochrome oxidase. So it, so it decreases O2 sat, so you can't carry a lot of oxygen. Less shifts your curve, so even what little you carry, you can't release. Okay? And then if you were able to release it, okay, it'd go to the end there and say, come on, electron. And no electron comes to it because you blocked the cytochrome oxidase and the whole system shuts down. You are screwed. Okay, so that's why carbon monoxide is such an important board question. Uncoupling you'll get when, uh, in biochemistry. Basically what it means is the ability for the 
uh, mitochondria and inner mitochondrial membrane to synthesize ATP. What's happening is that the uh, inner mitochondrial membrane is permeable to protons. You only want protons to go through a certain hole in that membrane. And you want it to go through this pore at the base of which is ATP synthase, and you're going to get ATP. You don't want protons just, just randomly going into the mitochondrial matrix because nothing's going to happen. That's what uncoupling agents do. Okay, examples would be dinitrophenol. This is chemical that they use for preserving wood. Uh, that does it. Uh, alcohol's an uncoupling agent. Salicylates are uncoupling agents. It causes the protons to just go right through the membrane. Not cool. You're draining off all those protons, and you're getting very little ATP from it. Well, since our body is in total equilibrium with each other, you start draining protons off, then those reactions that were generating the protons to begin with, those would include reactions that make NADH and uh, uh, FADH, remember? Mm -hmm. Those are the protons that were delivered to the electron transport system, right? So the more, so any reaction that makes NADH and any reaction that makes FADH, okay, uh, any of those reactions, you're going to rev those reactions up when your protons are decreased. So all the reactions start increasing, you know, to make more NADHs and FADHs to make more protons. Well, you all know from just simple chemistry that when you increase the rate of a chemical reaction, what happens to the temperature? Goes up. So what do you, what risk do you have for this type of thing, please? Hyperthermia. Anyone that's been in the business of medicine a while, I'm sure some of you looks like may have been in that business for a while, knows that in salicylate toxicity, one of the complications is hyperthermia. That's because it's an uncoupling agent. And well, most of you probably know that if you're an alcoholic on a hot day, you have a good chance of developing a heat stroke because you already have uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation. And so to throw on top of it alcohol, which is an, which is an uncoupling agent, you've got a bad situation. That's why alcoholics are so susceptible to heat stroke, because their mitochondria already screwed up. Okay, so that's what uncoupling agents do. Very interesting thing. And then uh, arterial venous shunting, we won't mention that. So these are all the causes of tissue hypoxia. We started with ischemia, then we went to hypoxemia, respiratory acidosis, ventilation defect, perfusion defect, diffusion defect, hemoglobin-related things, anemia, carbon monoxide, methemoglobin, left-shifted curve, problems with cytochrome oxidase and blocking it, carbon monoxide, cyanide, and uncoupling agents. All those produce tissue hypoxia. All right. Very important that you know those. Those are just absolute key things on boards. Absolute key things. So let's see if you learned anything. Fill in the blanks. Respiratory acidosis. What happens to hemoglobin? Let's assume it's just acute respiratory acidosis. Nothing. What's going to happen to oxygen saturation? Decrease it. And what's going to happen to the partial pressure of oxygen? Decrease it. Okay, so you're going to decrease both oxygen saturation and PO2. Why is oxygen saturation decreased? Because PO2 is decreased. Okay, anemia. What's the only one of these three things that's going to be affected? Hemoglobin. Oxygen saturation, PO2 is? No, no. How about carbon monoxide and med hemoglobin? Do either of them have an effect on hemoglobin concentration? No. How about oxygen saturation? Yes. How about PO2? No, very good. How do you treat uh, carbon monoxide poisoning? 100% oxygen. How do you treat methemoglobinemia? 
IV methylene blue. What else can you give as an ancillary treatment? Ascorbic acid. You got it. First concept finished. All right. Now let's see what happens when you have a decrease in ATP because you have tissue hypoxia. Okay. Well, the biggest thing of these three things, and probably the only one, well, two biggest things, is that you have to go into anaerobic glycolysis. Now, I know you haven't had that yet, but anyone in this room that doesn't know what anaerobic glycolysis is is in big-time trouble. Okay. Remember, the end product of anaerobic glycolysis is lactic acid. Pyruvate is converted into lactate. Why? Because of an increase in NADH. So you need to, you need to make NAD because you're going to need to NAD to feed back into the glycolytic cycle so you can make two more ATP. You want to know why you have to use anaerobic glycolysis when you have tissue hypoxia? The answer is, is your mitochondria is the one that usually makes all your ATP, except there's one place you can get two ATP without going into the mitochondria. And where is it? It's an anaerobic glycolysis, which every cell can do, including RBCs. So you're surviving on two ATPs per glucose for your ATP if you have tissue hypoxia because your mitochondrial system is totally shut down. If there's no oxygen at the end of that electron transport system, you're screwed. You can only get two ATP without having to go through that system by anaerobic glycolysis. So what's the good news? The good news is you get two ATP. Okay, what's the bad news? You get a buildup of lactic acid in the cell and outside the cell, you all know that you have an increased ion gap metabolic acidosis of tissue hypoxia. I mean, that's a given. You know that. That's lactic acidosis from anaerobic glycolysis. But within a cell, it does havoc. An increase in acid in a cell will denature proteins. Okay? In other words, the structural proteins of a cell, denaturing it is not good. That's altering its configuration. It's screwing it up. And in terms of enzymes, it denatures them too. So that means that the cell can't even auto-digest itself anymore because its enzymes have been destroyed because of the buildup of acid. That's called coagulation necrosis, guys. So when you have tissue hypoxia, one of the things that can happen within a cell is coagulation necrosis, which is one of the types of necrosis that you need to know, of course. And when you, when you look at coagulation necrosis from a gross point of view as opposed to a, a microscopic point of view, that's termed infarction. Okay, so that's where we're going with that eventually. So a buildup of acid, lactic acid in a cell, produces what type of necrosis? Coagulation necrosis, that's correct. Okay. Second thing that happens when you lack ATP is all ATPase pumps are screwed up. Why? Because they run on ATP. That's the power. How do muscles work? ATP. How does everything work that needs energy? ATP. And we have these pumps. And we have a sodium-potassium pump. You already know about this pump because there's a certain drug that blocked it. It's called digitalis. And we block that, put that pump with digitalis to allow sodium to go into the skin, into the cardiac muscle to open up what? Calcium channels so that you can get an increase in force of contraction. Am I correct? Isn't that what you learned in pharmacology? Yes or no? Okay. So sometimes you want the pump block. Okay. Sometimes you want to enhance it. Okay. But anyway, if there's no ATP, then what happens is sodium can get into the cell. 
Well, who does sodium always bring with it? Water. And so you're going to get cellular swelling. And that's reversible. It won't kill you. They get swollen up a little bit, you know. Just have some uh, pretzels with a lot of salt tonight. Okay, you'll be a little swollen in the morning. Little eyelids will be all kind of fused shut. I mean, you're not dead, are you? <laughs> you're just kind of swollen up. Okay? That's the one they like the most on boys, is this pump. So when you have a tissue hypoxia, they can give you any scenario they want from the ones that we just discussed for tissue hypoxia. What's going to be happening in that cell? It's going to be swollen up. Why? Decrease ATP. So sodium goes into the cell. Now all you got to do is you get oxygen back and it'll pump it out. All that excess solid sodium and water and the cell goes back to normal. So it's totally reversible. Okay, so I think of these three things, the two most important one is that in tissue hypoxia, the cell has to undergo anaerobic glycolysis, and of course, a mature red blood cell is doing that all the time, because mature red blood cells don't have mitochondria, and so that's the main energy source right there. So that's a normal thing for red blood cells. It says, hey, I'm, in, I'm just in heaven. Okay, I'm just doing what I normally do, anaerobic glycolysis. Okay, but in other tissues, they don't like that. They'd rather have the whole thing going from pyruvate, not into lactate. They want it to be going into forming citrate and going into the TCA cycle. They want the citrate to go out into the cytosol, make some fatty acids. They want oh, the whole shish kebab, not lactic acid. <laughs> okay? All right. So this, these two things are the most important things uh, in terms of uh, tissue hypoxia and what happens. So we said that cellular swelling, of course, they give names in this in pathology, but they don't, they don't on boards. They just say cellular swelling. They don't use the terms like hydropic degeneration, crap like that. I mean, that's just junky stuff. They just say cellular swelling. In fact, they try to use very, very little uh, things that give away answers. Okay, so, all right, because in most of your courses, you had to memorize everything, right? Hydropic degeneration, you know. All these anchovy paste abscess. So now you're never going to see that crap. You're not going to see that stuff on this test. <laughs> a chance in God's green earth. No way. They're going to take all those little crutches that you use away from you and just describe them and not actually use those names. Corvoir seroside, the palpable gallbladder with carcinoma in the head of the pancreas. Forget it. Okay, there's going to be a guy with painless jaundice and a palpable gallbladder and, and, and light-colored stool. They're not going to say a colic stools. No, no, no. They're just light-colored. And you have to come up with the fact it's carcinoma in the head of the pancreas. Okay. If you knew it was corvoid serocyte for the palpable gallbladder, but it ain't going to help you on the boards. Okay. Now, a cell without oxygen. Now that's coffee. Starbucks makes coffee. <laughs> Anything short of Starbucks is not coffee. Okay. It's just colored water. All right. Now you can prove me wrong by bringing some of your national brands, and I'll taste it, and I'll be able to check it, but we'll see. I've had some good stuff from some Costa Rica. Somebody gave me some of their Costa Rica. Oh, food, that was wonderful. I mean, my hair went up. <laughs> this is good stuff. It's actually legal. All right. Don't have to worry about. It. Don't have to worry about shipping it into the country clandestinely. I mean, woo, just give it to me. Is Mountain Dew for the little kids? And there's 
That kind of coffee for us. Whoa. Alright. So, a, a cell without, a, without oxygen for a while, it eventually things are irreversibly going to occur. And they, they're interested in this too. One of the big actors for uh, irreversible change is calcium. They really like to know what happens to calcium in tissue hypoxia. The answer is it enters cells. Actually, there's a pump, just like there's a sodium potassium ATPase pump, there's a calcium ATPase pump also. And so what happens is if ATPase, if ATPs decrease, calcium now has easy access to the cell. And when it's in a cell, it's like, it's unbelievable. It activates all these enzymes. It activates phospholipases in the cell membrane. That's not cool. It's going to cause damage to the cell membrane. It's going to activate uh, enzymes in the nucleus. That's not cool because you're going to end up getting nuclear pycnosis and eventually the, the nucleus, nuclear chromatin just plain disappears. It goes into the mitochondria. Oh, God, it just has a blast in there. That's like a kid going to McDonald's in one of those, you know, tube things. You know, oh, no, look at It just destroys the mitochondria. So it activates enzymes. Calcium's famous for that. You all know that hypercalcemia produces acute pancreatitis. Now maybe that can, maybe you just put something together now for the first time. It can activate your actual enzymes in your stinking pancreas. And you get an acute pancreatitis from hypercalcemia. So it's no, no small wonder that if it goes into a cell, it does the same stinking thing. Okay? So that's one of the key things for reducing irreversible change is our little friend calcium. Of the two that get damaged, that's the worst thing to get damaged. I think cell membrane is the worst because that's the thing that's, that's preventing bad things from the outside from getting into a cell. So if you start destroying that, your cell's irreversibly damaged. But then to add insult to injury and knock off the mitochondria, the energy-producing factory, it's all over. It's all over. Okay, so all those skins are irreversible when you screw up the cell membrane. And when our little friend calcium gets in, does this thing, it's all over. Cell dies. A lot of times it releases enzymes. We all know those different enzymes, CK and the CKMB for myocardial infarction could release that. Could release transaminases and hepatitis, SGOT or ALT or ASD, ALT, those kinds of things. Amylase and pancreatitis, those kinds of things can get released when that tissue, that cell dies. Okay? So that's that concept. Two others, and uh, we're away from tissue hypoxia right now, is uh, free radicals. Free radicals are very important. Uh, this little, we'll slip it up over here, is showing a liver in a person that has this kind of uh, brownish pigment. It's very commonly seen in uh, older people when their organs undergo atrophy. Uh, this is called lipofuscin, the so-called wear and tear pigment. Now, you can't look at that and tell me that's lipofuscin without history. Because that could just as easily be hemosiderin and hemochromatosis and hemosiderosis. It could easily even be bilirubin. So you would need more information to be able to say that's what it was. But what I'm basically saying is that when you have free radical damage, one of the end products of that is uh, lipofuscin. Because certain things in a cell are not digestible. Those include lipids. And so that's what lipofuscin is. It's lipids that you just can't break down all the way. Now, what is a free radical? A free radical is, a, is a, a compound that has an unpaired electron in its outer orbit. Well, that's not cool. That makes it very unstable. Okay, that means it's going to damage something because it's just not all there. You know, if we have an unpaired electron in our brains, what happens? We do crazy things, you know. 
And so it's, it's, it's going to damage things. Now, interestingly, what are we breathing right now? Oxygen. Oxygen can be a free radical. No. Yeah. You give someone 50% or higher oxygen for any period of time, they're going to get superoxide free radicals. Is that bad? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ever heard of reperfusion injury? You know, when we give our tissue plasminogen activator for somebody that has a coronary thrombus and we try to dissolve that thrombus, and we do most of the time, and oxygenated blood goes back into that, that damaged cardiac muscle. Have you ever heard of the reperfusion injury? Do you think that maybe involves oxygen-free radicals? Oh, yeah. It really does a job in those injured cells and knocks some of them off. Mm-hmm. And then if you can know about kids with respiratory distress syndrome, they can end up with oxygen-related uh, free radical injury. They can go blind. Okay, the free oxygen-free radicals can destroy the retina. That's called, uh, that used to be called retrolinal fibroplasia. Now it's called retinopathy of prematurity. It also can produce uh, damage to your lungs. It's called bronchopulmonary dysplasia, where you get fibrosis in your lungs. And you have chronic crippling lung disease from that. Almost, so it's not good. So oxygen is a free radical. And then water in our tissues can be converted into uh, hydroxyl free radicals. Now, that's what ionizing radiation does. That's not UVB light. That's non-ionizing radiation. When you get radiated for a cancer, you get hydrolysis of water, you form hydroxyl free radicals. And they can produce mutations in, in, uh, in uh, those tissues, and you all know that a complication of radiation therapy is cancer. Most common cancer in radiation, please? Leukemia. So did it because of free radicals, hydroxyl free radicals. Iron loves to make free radicals as a reaction called a Fenton reaction. That's what makes iron overload diseases so dangerous because wherever tissue iron's located, you're going to get hydroxyl free radicals and they're going to damage that tissue. If you got it in your liver, you're going to get cirrhosis. If you have it in your heart, you're going to get restrictive cardiomyopathy. If you get it in your pancreas, it ain't going to work anymore. And you're going to get malabsorption and you're going to get diabetes. So we'll take this story up after our 10 minute break. Continue our free radical discussion. How many of you took Tylenol this morning? If you did, you took a poison. Everybody takes Tylenol. Baloney. Should be taken off the market. It's the number one cause of fulminant hepatitis due to a drug. Why? Free radicals. Free radicals. Tylenol is acetaminophen. And as you learned, or maybe learned, yes, you would have learned this in form a little bit. You learned a little bit more in biochemistry about the cytochrome P450 system in the liver. Uh, metabolizes drugs, but also uh, can change, change drugs into free radicals. It's oftentimes not the drug, as you know, from pharmacology that actually, when it, you know, that you take does, does the... Uh, uh, the activity, it's oftentimes changed in the liver into the active metabolite. Like I think phenytoin fits that kind of category. Okay? And so uh, acetaminophen, in terms of the mechanism for its injury, it's free radical. 
okay? And the organ that it really targets is, of course, the liver, but it also targets the kidneys, but that's another story for kidney when we get to that. And so um, uh, drugs can form free radicals. The one they like most, of course, is acetaminophen because it's the number one cause of drug-induced fulminant hepatitis in the United States. Okay. Now, uh, they asked a board question on where in the liver uh, acetaminophen toxicity uh, manifests itself. I'll show you that in a little bit when I have a picture of the liver and discuss the concept of where in the liver damage occurs, and I'll discuss that concept. The answer is right around the central vein um, is where the damage is. So drugs can form free radicals. Anybody know what the treatment is? They do. This would be part one material. Uh, and acetylcysteine, big deal. That's memorization. How does it work? Well, it turns out that that free radicals have things that neutralize them. Thank God <laughs> we have free radicals that, that, that they get neutralized because they hurt us. Who knows what the, what the neutralizer is for superoxide free radicals? No, the answer is superoxide dismutase, otherwise known as SOD. Superoxide, just think superoxide free radical, superoxide dismutase is what basically disarms and neutralizes oxygen free radicals. Okay, now glutathione, where does that come from, please? Please? The hexose or pentose phosphate shunt, you recall, is what generates glutathione. Also is what generates NADPH, which is the main uh, substance that we use for all anabolic uh, biochemical reactions, things that synthesize steroids, you recall, cholesterol, etc. That you get in biochemistry uh, with Dr. Hansen a little bit more. Okay, so I, I'm sure that you're not totally up on that. But glutathione is mainly made, guys, in the pentose phosphate shunt. That's the end product, and its main function is to neutralize free radicals. Uh, it loves to neutralize drug-free radicals, and it also loves to neutralize any free radical that derives from peroxide. There are many free radicals that derive from peroxide. That, that stuff that you put on your, on your little cuts and stuff, hydrogen peroxide, is fantastic stuff. It breaks down into free radicals that just kill everything in sight. Okay? And glutathione can neutralize it. Okay? And so it gets used up in neutralizing the acetaminophen free radicals. When you give it N-acetylcysteine, otherwise known as mucamest, you basically replenish. Glutathione is made out of N-acetylcysteine. And so you're giving the substrate to make more glutathione so that you can keep up with neutralizing the acetaminophen free radicals. So you're, so you're trying to keep the glutathione levels up. Basically, that's the mechanism of giving N-acetylcysteine. Okay. Because glutathione is being used up by neutralizing the acetaminophen free radicals. So we give it more substrate. It's kind of like methotrexate, the uh, leucoverin rescue, so that you don't get your folate deficiency. Um, the leucoverin basically uh, makes a substrate that you can still make your DNA. Uh, even with a block of dihydrofolate reductase. It just supplies the substrate that you can continue to make DNA. So it gets around it that way. It's the same similar situation. You're supplying the substrate and acetylcysteine to make, continue making glutathione so that you can keep neutralizing your acetaminophen, keep the patient alive. Now that's what they ask on board, not what's the treatment for acetaminophen toxicity. They want mechanisms mechanisms. Why is the name of the game on the boards, guys, not what. 
Why? Not what. Why? That's mechanism. That's also for part two. I taught part two also. Okay. Why? They assume you know the what. They want to know the why. Okay. So always when you're thinking about that's why I'm always explaining why. Why? Why? How? Pathogenesis. Mechanism. That's what they're interested in. Not your ability to memorize things. They know you can do that. Can you apply the information is what they're interested in. The answer to that is yes, you can. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. Okay. Uh, carbon tetrachloride. They kind of, they don't, I haven't heard of a carbon tetrachloride question in a long time. So I think that probably has been kind of abandoned. That's seen in the dry cleaning industry. That can also be converted into a uh, free radical uh, in the liver. It's from CCL3, and you get the fulminate liver failure with that. They're really interested in acetaminophen for two purposes. One, fulminate liver disease, free radical, and also, along with aspirin, God forbid anyone in this room is taking something with acetaminophen and aspirin at the same time for any prolonged period of time, you might be saying bye-bye to your kidneys right now. Say bye-bye if you're on that, because you are destroying them big time. Free radicals from acetaminophen are annihilating your renal medulla. It only gets 10% of the blood supply, guys. It's relatively hypoxic in your renal medulla. Mm-hmm. And so free radicals are whipping away and knocking off your renal tubules. And, of course, aspirin's knocking off the vasodilator of your kidneys, which is PGE2. It's made in the, the afferent arterial. And so that leaves angiotensin II, a vasoconstrictor, in charge of your renal blood flow. Hmm. Not a good combo of angiotensin II controlling your blood flow in your kidneys, and then having acetaminophen-free radicals in your kidneys knocking off your renal tubules in your medulla. What are you going to do? We're going to slough off your renal papilla. Or totally destroy your ability to concentrate and dilute. What? Urine. Yeah, it's called analgesic nephropathy, guys. And, and you better believe acetaminophen is big time in it. Okay, so get, get, get yourself a little bit off on the liver and also concentrate on the kidneys also. It can screw that up too. I think that's it for free radicals. I think we've done enough harm with that, scared enough people with it that took out Tylenol this morning, possibly an aspirin with it. Okay, remember it's a cumulative thing, probably over years. So you're safe if you just took it today. Okay, apoptosis is a big, big hot term. I tried reading it in Robbins, and I got totally confused, which means it's poorly written. Unless that, or I read ADD really bad, and I just don't get it. But uh, <laughs> I do have attention deficit big time, and I probably, because I read it slowly, and then I got a little bit off slowly again. I got a little bit off, but even, even reading it ten times, you know, after I was able to eventually get through it with my attention deficit problem, um, I still didn't quite have a real good grasp on it, okay? Uh, but I can tell you this. What's in your notes is the, is the gist of what I was able to pick up on what apoptosis is all about. It's programmed cell death, guys. Apoptosis. We have genes, apoptosis genes that are involved in cell death. And so one of the theories of aging is that we're programmed to die, and that's true. Of course, there's other 
there's other abnormalities too, things that we screw up our bodies with, like smoking and drinking and and uh, that kind of stuff. We can we can do a pretty good job on uh, all on our own without in, in, uh, you know involving our apoptosis genes at all. You know, we can just kill ourselves with the whatever. So it's involved in uh, their genes involved in cell death, programmed cell death. Okay, it has lots of functions, normal functions. Uh, one of the biggest ones is uh, in uh, embryology, so it's got a great embryology tie-in. Remember, organs initially, like our, our small bowel and all that, used to be solid. So how did they become? How did they get lumens? Apoptosis. Every time I ask you how, you're going to say apoptosis. Okay, that way you'll get used to saying apoptosis. Are you ready? Okay, uh, guys, what's the what is our what's the king of our body? Say Y chromosome. Y chromosome. And say it with pride. Say it again. Y chromosome. Okay. It's not W H Y chromosome. Y chromosome. Y chromosome. Because guys, when our Y chromosome came into existence from our dads, um, the germinal ridge went the testicle root. Okay. One of those chemicals that came out immediately was mullerian inhibitory factor. <laughs> now, why is, why is it, guys, so important that we have mullerian inhibitory factor of my little testicles in our germinal ridges? Answer is, all those mullerian structures, now let me recite them for you. Uterus, bleh. cervix, bleh. upper one-third of vagina, bleh, bleh. okay, gone. Okay, that's why we have no malarian structures, because of apoptosis working through mullerian inhibitory factor, which was the signal. Mullerian inhibitory factor is a signal. There has to be a signal for apoptosis. What is the signal? Decaspasases. That's a big word. That's right. And what do the caspasases do? Mm, destroy everything. Okay. And so they, and it wraps them up in a nice little bundle surrounded by membranes called apoptotic bodies, which are phagocytosin destroyed. And, and what's left over that you can't digest is liposuction. So apoptosis got rid of our mullerian structures now. What is your women, what is your big letter of the alphabet? X. You should say, say X, please. X. Some people just refuse to do this. They just refuse to do this. Okay? They refuse to play this game. I'm trying to teach you by saying X, that's all. Even though you only got one functional one, the other one's a bar body. That's cool. At least you got some little dumbbell there to work out with. Okay. So, what is so good about apoptosis in you guys? Well, the absence of a Y chromosome causes your germinal ridge to go the ovarian route. And you made a, a factor that knocked off what structures? Wolfian duct structures. Mesonephric duct. Well, that's what they have developed in you. Oh, epididymis, seminal vesicles, you know, those little the vast deferens. You don't want any of that crap, do you? No, no, no. Okay? So they went by apoptosis. What's my thymus look like right now in my anteriormediastinum? It's kind of small versus a kid, which is kind of big. So when you do a chest ray of a kid, what do you expect to see when you do a lateral X-ray? Big old, there's a lot of stuff going on in that, in that anterior compartment there. What is it? Thymus, whatever was absent. 
The George syndrome, very good. What else would they have? Tetany, okay. Well, what caused our biothymuses to involute apoptosis? So it's involved in normal embryology and things outside of, you know, when we're adults as well. It's also involved in cancer killing. Apoptosis is a major mechanism for killing cancer cells, okay? And then atrophy, the process of atrophy. When we have atrophy and we reduce cell mass, okay, or tissue mass, most of the time those cells go out by a process called apoptosis. And a couple of examples of uh, some of these things, and hepatitis also is a good example. You've heard of the term councilman body. This is a liver and hepatitis here. You see this little very, very eosinophilic cell without a nucleus? This is an example of apoptosis. Do you see any inflammation around there? No. And so it's individual cell death without a whole lot of inflammation around it. It just needs a signal, okay, which it could be a, a hormone or a, or a chemical or whatever, and then that activates the caspases, which are enzymes, and it ends up uh, destroying that particular cell without any inflammatory infiltrate whatsoever. Okay, so councilman body is a good example of apoptosis. So a lot of times when we have a virally infected cell and cytotoxic T cells come and destroy it, it's destroyed by apoptosis. Okay, these are neurons in the brain. They shouldn't look like this. Nice and red cytoplasm and very pycnotic nucleus. That's not a very nice looking neuron. Okay, that's because this patient probably has atherosclerotic plaques and his carotid artery with ischemia to the brain and it produced apoptosis of his neurons. And so they lost brain mass and had brain atrophy, okay, related to ischemia by the process of apoptosis. So we see that it's involved in good things, embryology, uh, things in normal involution, things like thymus, okay? It's also involved in, in, in pathology, cancer, killing cells that are virally infected or neoplastic cells knocking them off, those kinds of things. So it has a very, very important role in pathology and very commonly asked on exams. So what's the name of those enzymes that are involved in this? That the, the caspasases. Think of Casper, Casper the friendly ghost. Okay, and that's close enough. You can sure if you saw it as a mess, something on, on an exam, you better Casper, caspasases. You see that? That's the dude. Okay, let's think of Casper the friendly ghost. Never seen him because I don't believe in ghosts. Ghosts or whatever. All right, a couple pictures. Um, let's talk about types of necrosis now and look at some actual gross and some microscopic, mainly gross, uh, manifestations of uh, tissue damage, which we call necrosis. When we damage tissue and it dies, it's called tissue necrosis. And there's names that are, are applied to different types of necrosis. Remember I told you that when we have ischemia or a tissue hypoxia, I have no oxygen, lactic acid level builds up in a cell, it denatures everything in the cell that's a protein, including the enzymes, and we ended up with what type of, of necrosis? Coagulation necrosis. Well, this is what it looks like in a patient with a myocardial infarction. You can see here that the anterior wall of the left ventricle is pale, so this is a, and we call the gross manifestation of coagulation necrosis, that's called infarction. So when we can see it with our eyes, that's called an infarction. When we look at it under the microscope and we see a tissue that looks like cardiac muscle, but it has no striations in it, it has no nuclei in it, it's very bright red, we see no real inflammatory infiltrate here, this thing is all denatured by 
by the increase in lactic acid, which destroyed the enzymes. And so these cells, these tissues cannot be broken down. Neutrophils are going to have to come in from the outside to break these cells down. So when you see vague outlines of what used to be uh, uh, whatever the tissue is or what it's supposed to be, this should have been cardiac tissue. That's called, that's called coagulation necrosis. Okay, and that's responsible for the color changes that we see in this heart. Now, as you know, they uh, divided fascias into pale ones and hemorrhagic ones. I think it's kind of stupid. Dead is dead, but they think it's important. And so how are you going to work your way through that? How are you going to think about that? Well, it's basically the consistency of the tissue that determines whether it's going to be pale in appearance versus hemorrhagic in appearance when you infarct tissue via coagulation necrosis. If it's good consistency, and when the tissue dies, including the blood vessels, then when the blood vessels die and the, and the red blood cells are released, they can't really diffuse out into that tissue because the tissue has good consistency, so it'll grossly look pale. And so organs that you would expect to be pale would be, of course, heart, uh, kidney usually is pale, got a good consistency. Spleen, yeah, not a bad consistency, it's usually pale. Uh, liver, which is the rarest of the organs to, uh, to uh, infarct because of a double blood supply, is pale because they have good consistency. But I think you would all agree that bowel has very, very loose textured consistency. That would likely be hemorrhagic, certainly a testicle. If it underwent torsion, that's a big board question, a torsion of the testicle question. Then um, that's going to be hemorrhagic. It's very, very uh, meshy. And, of course, the lungs, unequivocally, is going to be a hemorrhagic infarction because it has a loose consistency. And so when those blood vessels rupture, the RBCs can easily trickle out into the damaged tissue and produce a hemorrhagic appearance. Okay. All right. So this is a pale infarction. This is the example of coagulation necrosis. All right. Let's look at some more examples. What's this organ? Spleen, and there's an example of a pale infarction. Now, most of these are due to embolization. Now, where do most emboli in the systemic circulation arise? The left side of the heart. Okay, so could you name a couple things that could have embolized to this spleen to produce a pale infarct of it, please? A vegetation. Now, don't think rheumatic fever. That's not a good one to pick because the, the vegetation's in acute rheumatic fever Rarely embolized, they're too small. But infective endocarditis, that'd be another story. Yeah, they can, a little piece can run a little, sure. Now, maybe you were thinking mitral stenosis, which is the, which is the usual when you have a, a, a heart repeatedly um, attacked with the beta group A streptococcus. Then you get mitral stenosis, then you can get these big old clots, thrombi in the left atrium, get a little bit of atrial fibrillation, the absolute worst arrhythmia, another board question. The arrhythmia most associated with embolization in the systemic circulation is atrial fibrillation because it produces stasis for one in the atria, clot formation, and then it vibrates in there and little bits and pieces of clot can come off and embolize. Okay, so usually it could be clot, it could be a vegetation that embolizes, and it could go to little places like the spleen and produce a pale infarction. Okay, what's this called, please? Dry gangrene. How do you know it's not wet? Because you don't see any pus oozing off of here. Okay, now if you had played odds on whose, whose foot this belonged to, who would it be? Diabetic. And where do you think the problem's going to be? The popliteal artery. It's going to have atherosclerosis in it, possibly even be thrombosed. 
Okay, remember, the most common cause of non-traumatic amputation of the lower extremity in the United States is diabetes because it enhances atherosclerosis. Popliteal artery is a dangerous artery. Next to the coronary, it's probably one of the most dangerous arteries because it's got a small lumen, and you put atherosclerotic plaque in it, you've got a big-time problem. Okay. So this is a good example also, this dry gangrene of uh, coagulation necrosis related to ischemia. What was the definition of ischemia? Decrease in arterial blood flow. And what would the pathogenesis of that decrease in arterial blood flow be due to in this patient? Atherosclerosis of what vessel? Popliteal artery. Okay. What's the pathogenesis of this myocardial infarction? Coronary thrombosis. Overlying what? An atheromatous plaque. So atherosclerosis was the, was the thing initially producing the ischemia, and then the lumen got blocked by a thrombus. Okay. Just trying to get you to make sure that you understand mechanisms. Mechanisms. Okay, that's this piece of small bowel. Here's the normal color of small bowel. You can obviously see that this is hemorrhagic. And if we took a section through it, we would see vague outlines of what used to be small bowel. So what's this an example of? A hemorrhagic infarction of the small bowel. You notice that it's a very small portion here. Looks like it got trapped somebody. Would anyone want to venture a guess on what it was trapped into and get that question right on the boards? How about an indirect inguinal hernia sac? Remember, the second most common cause of bowel infarction is, is getting a piece of small bowel trapped in an indirect inguinal hernia sac. The most common cause, you recall, is adhesions from previous surgery. And we do that when we do GI. But you can clearly see this is a small segment of small bowel, and it looked like it probably got uh, incarcerated in an inguinal hernia sac. Okay, notice it's a hemorrhagic infarction. Okay, what's this tissue, please? Lung. What's this thing right here? It's a hemorrhagic infarction of lung. Notice it's wedge-shaped. Notice that it went to the pleural surface. So would you have an effusion? Sure. You'd have an effusion. That would be an exudate. You learned that in immunology. Okay, be hemorrhagic. It'd have neutrophils in it. The whole bit. Okay. And if you inflame the pleura, what kind of chest pain do you have, please? Pleuritic chest pain. That's a knife-like pain on inspiration. Comprende. That means do you comprehend? I can speak all languages, by the way. Okay. Here's the embolus right over here in the pulmonary vessel that produces hemorrhagic infarction. Okay, right now all we're doing is, doing, is mentioning uh, uh, types of necrosis. We do this all over again when we go through the systems. So we'll see the same slide again. Okay, now there is an exception to the rule for coagulation necrosis as being the underlying type of necrosis seen uh, in infarctions. And that exception to the rule, and there's only one, is the brain. When you infarct the brain, and the most common infarction occurs right here, that's why you listen to this area on the, in the neck with your stethoscopes. You're listening for a brewy. That's a, that's a noise that's going to be going through a, 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 a vessel that has a narrow lumen. Okay? And if you can hear a brewy, it's usually significantly narrow. See, that's the place, guys, where a platelet thrombus develops over natural sclerotic plaque. It blocks it. You end up with a stroke. It's also the place where little bits and pieces of atherosclerotic plaque chip off and produce transient ischemic attacks. Transient ischemic attacks in atherosclerotic stro uh, uh, disease is just little tiny bits of atheromatous plaque going into small little vessels in the brain, producing motor or sensory abnormalities that go away within 24 hours. That's what they are. 
when uh, the brain, as you know, has very little uh, 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 mesh work in it. You know, you can put your finger right through it real easy. In fact, what's analogous to the fibroblast in the brain? The astrocyte, okay, because of its protoplasmic processes. So in a sense, it's acting like a fibroblast. It can't make collagen, but its protoplasmic processes give some structure to the brain. So when we infarct the brain, which hardly has any structure, it just basically liquefies. And so the type of necrosis we see when we infarct the brain is not coagulation necrosis. You're not going to see vague outlines of what used to be brain tissues. It's going to be a cystic space like you see here. It's liquefactive necrosis. So the exception to the rule for uh, infarctions are not being coagulation necrosis, the exception to the rule is the brain where it undergoes liquefactive necrosis because there's no structure to it, and so it just leaves a hole. It liquefies. It doesn't coagulate. Okay, small point, but I put this purposely together. This is a cerebral abscess over here, okay, and this is a uh, atro old atherosclerotic stroke over here. Both of these are liquefactive necrosis, but uh, this is an example of an infarction that produced this one right here. This is an example of an infection. So we know what uh, coagulation necrosis is. It can be pale. It could be hemorrhagic grossly. Now we talk about another type of necrosis called liquefactive. And it actually says what it does. Liquefactive means it liquefies. And when I think of something liquefying tissue, the very first thing that comes to my mind is a neutrophil. Because its main purpose in life is to pack acetose and destroy things with its enzymes, to liquefy them. And so for all intents and purposes, a liquefactive necrosis in most cases relates to an infection where neutrophils are involved, usually acute inflammation, producing an abscess or some type of inflammatory condition, and it liquefies tissue. So when I think of liquefactive necrosis, I, more, I more, most commonly think of acute inflammation related to neutrophils damaging the tissue. The one exception to that rule is a liquefactive necrosis in the brain related to an infarct. Okay, that would be not an inflammatory condition, it just liquefies. But this would be an example of liquefactive necrosis due to an actual infection in the brain. So either way, whether you infarct the brain or you have an infection in the brain that produces an abscess, it's the same process, liquefactive necrosis. This is something you're a little bit more familiar with, an abscess over here. You can see that this is pointing, so play odds on what the gram stain would show. Let's see what you learned in microbiology. You should see gram-positive cocci in clusters. Why are they in clusters, please? Coagulase, okay? And that's why you form abscesses with staph aureus. Coagulase does coagulates. Converts fibrinogen into fibrin, and so it localizes the infection. Neutrophils can't get out because of the fibrin strands around, and that's why you have an abscess. Okay, now what, is, what does uh, uh, strep do? Well, it releases hyaluronidase. And so that breaks down the glycosaminoglycans in your tissue, and so infections spread through tissue. That's called cellulitis. They expect you to know stuff like that. Okay. But from the point of view of necrosis, because this is an infection, neutrophils are involved. What type of necrosis? Liquefactive necrosis. Okay, here's the lung. Okay, and we see these little yellowish areas here in the lung all over the place. This patient had high fever and productive cough. A Graham stone showed what? Gram-positive diplococcus, which was what? Strep pneumoniae, the most common cause of bronchopneumonia. Okay? 
But right now we're just talking about necrosis. So since this is, these are areas of abscess formation and bronchopneumonia due to strep pneumoniae, what type of necrosis is it, please? Liquefactive necrosis. Good. Why isn't it hemorrhagic necrosis in a, uh, uh, in a, uh, or hemorrhagic infarction? Well, first of all, it should be hemorrhagic and it's pale. And second of all, it's little discrete round things where they, an infarct of the lung would be located where? Right at the periphery in a wedge-shaped configuration. Do you recall that? Hmm? Hmm? Always goes to the periphery, guys. That's why I get pleuritic chest pain. Hmm? There's no way in God's green earth this can be uh, a, a, a bronchopneumonia. <laughs> I mean, a, a infarction. No way. It's pale and is round. That's an abscess. Of course, they would give you history like I gave you to know it's pneumonia. And then type of necrosis, liquefactive. Don't you, when you do a gram stain, don't you see neutrophils in a gram stain? Phagocytosis, strep pneumonia, yes or no? Okay, so that's showing that's acute inflammation, that's liquefactive necrosis. All right, what's this? Let's say it's a fever patient with fever, night sweats, and weight loss. TB, so what will we call this type of necrosis? Granulomatous type of necrosis, okay? Um, I will discuss the pathogenesis of the granuloma. Hopefully it's already been done for you, but I suspect it wasn't. If things like interleukin-12 were not mentioned, uh, subset, well, one, helper T-cells were not mentioned, uh, then you, weren't, you didn't have a discussion of the pathogenesis of a granuloma or a positive PPD, okay, which is on boards. So right now we're just getting into the concept of granulomatous type of necrosis, another term, cageous necrosis. Very confusing to students. I mean, most people know casia. Cageous means kind of cheesy, okay? If we, uh, if we squeeze this particular lesion here in the lung, it had a cheesy consistency called, that's called cageous necrosis. What does it really mean? It basically means you either have a mycobacterial infection, any mycobacterium, including atypicals, or a systemic fungal infection, period. That's it. Those are the only things that can produce caseation in a granuloma. Well, what is it? Well, it's the lipid in the cell wall of those organisms. That's giving it that cheesy appearance. It's the lipid in the cell wall. Okay. So, having said that, do you get granulomas and sarcoidosis? You should already know the answer to that. Yes, you do. But are they cages? No, because they're not related to mycobacterium or systemic fungi. Do you get granulomas and Crohn's disease? Yes or no? Yes. Are they cages? No. Why? Because they're not related to mycobacterium or systemic fungi. So caseation is a term literally uh, uh, that, that only uh, is associated with uh, mycobacterial infections or systemic fungal infections, period. No other type of granuloma uh, has caseation with it other than those, those particular diseases. Okay, so caseous necrosis is another one you want to remember. These are foreign body giant cells, okay, and we'll discuss that when we do inflammation. Okay, here's a uh, pancreas, there's the duodenum over here. This is the pancreas, does it look normal? Say no, because we are talking about pathology. Okay, so you'd always be safe and say no, it's very abnormal, even though you have no idea how it's not normal. At least it'll help you sound good about yourself. Let's see, I got one right, it's not normal. Okay, what's not, I don't know, but it's not normal. Okay. Now, women can get away with that because they have intuition. They can say, I just feel it in my body. That is not normal. Okay? And they're right. 
They're absolutely right 99% of the time. Like 99.9% with my wife. And she had no rational reason for believing it. That's the cool part. God, do I wish I had that gift. All right, so here's the person. Now, where's the pain going to be here, guys? Just to show you how simple this board is. God Almighty, is it simple? They give it away in the stem of the question. Somebody has epigastric distress with pain what? Radiating where? Into the back, pancreatitis. Cannot be peptic ulcer disease, guys. The pancreas is retroperitoneal. When it gets inflamed, the pain is referred into the back. Peptic ulcers are not retroperitoneal. So you just have epigastric pain. Totally simple. Totally simple. They put all that stuff in the stem of the question. You know, anything about physical diagnosis, a lot of the systemic pathology questions are, you mean, you just get a boom like that. They just literally give it away. So pain radiating into a back, okay, is pancreatitis, all the heads and purposes. So what type of necrosis do you think we are now dealing with? Enzymatic fat necrosis. So it's fat necrosis related to enzymes. What about a woman that has pendulous breasts, okay, and she damages them maybe from running without support, and she gets fat necrosis, okay, is that enzymatic? No, 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 that's traumatic fat necrosis. And can it calcify? Oh, yeah. Can it look like cancer on an x-ray, on a mammogram? Oh, yeah. Does it scare the living daylights out of a woman? Oh, yeah. But what's the difference between that and calcification in a cancer? It's painful versus painless. So traumatic fat necrosis usually occurs in, in the breast tissue or other adipose. But enzymatic fat necrosis is unique to the pancreas because it's the enzymes that are breaking down fat into fatty acids, which combine with calcium salts to produce chalky areas of enzymatic fat necrosis. These little chalky white areas, guys, have calcium in it. It's calcium bound to fatty acids. It's called saponification. It's actually forming a soap-like salt. Can these be seen on x-ray? Say yes. Yes, because they have calcium in them. So if they show you an x-ray, some dude that had pain that constantly penetrated into his back, and they show you this x-ray, and you see in the area of the right upper quadrant, these little tiny cycle calcifications in the area of the pancreas, what is it? It's pancreatitis. And a patient who is a alcoholic, there you go. It's the simple little things that they do on these boards. Simple little things. Not hard. Not hard. You make this test harder than it really is. It really isn't hard. Most of it's because you're so stinking nervous because your whole life depends on doing well. If you, if you didn't, if you had all the time in the world, okay, and you could put your feet up and just kind of go la 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 la, you just kill this test because it ain't all that hard. But you throw on top of it a little anxiety, I can see where you can get you know, just things start getting jumbled up there. I will guarantee you by the end of Friday, when we're done here, your level of confidence should be going up. Because you I got a lot of the testing and notes right there. Yeah. <laughs> this is what enzymatic fat necrosis looks like histologically. These, wherever you see blue, wherever you see blue in a histologic section, let's say in a coronary vessel, and you know it's atherosclerotic. And you see some bluish discoloration. It's always calcium. Calcium kind of stains blue. It's actually called dystrophic calcification. That's calcification of damaged tissue. 
And so this is the calcium salt. This little bluish area would correspond with these white areas that we see grossly. This, of course, is hemorrhage. This patient had hemorrhagic pancreatitis. So they could put this picture up there, and they have. And they can ask you what enzyme would be elevated. That was an easy one. Except amylase wasn't listed. Lipase. Very good. Okay. Which one's more specific, amylase or lipase? Lipase. Why? Because amylase is in your parotid glands. It's also in your small bowel. It's in your fallopian tubes. Not very specific, but lipase is only found in your pancreas. That was a board question. Or they could show this, and they could say, what type of necrosis is it? You know, enzymatic fat necrosis. But usually, you know, nothing that simple. Usually, they could go around it to and go through mechanisms. You say, you know, what's the underlying cause of this thing? Answer, alcohol. Produces these little thick secretions in the ducts, and then they end up getting uh, activation of the enzymes, and you end up with pancreatitis. So whenever you see bluish discoloration and say an atherosclerotic plaque with something like this in the pancreas, you know that's calcium. The last of the uh, types of necrosis of importance is fibrinoid necrosis. Now what's oid mean? Looks like but isn't. So there was someone in here that was an exact replica of me, and I don't see anyone that is, then you'd be goyanoid. <laughs> okay? That means if you look like me but you're not me. Okay, so fibrinoid means it looks like fibrin, but it ain't fibrin. Okay, now this is just showing you just a panorama of different diseases we will talk about later. Right now we're concentrating on fibrinoid necrosis and what it means. It's the necrosis of immunologic disease. So let me show you some immunologic diseases. Well, palpable purpura. When you, when you see that word palpable purpura, the stem of a question, that's a small vessel vasculitis. Okay, it's got it's immune complex type three automatically. So all I have to do is say palpable purpura, type three hypersensitivity, small vessel disease. Boom, done. Okay, and fibrinoid necrosis kind of has it's an immune complex deposition. Uh, in this case, a small vessel. And they also ask what's the pathogenesis of how immune complexes work. Did you did you know? Did your did your uh, immunologist tell you? How do you get damage in type 3 hypersensitivity? An immune complex? You know what an immune complex is. Yeah, it's an antigen and an antibody circulating in the circulation. Good. And then where does it deposit? Well, places that the circulation can take it to. Okay, so it could be in a glomerulus. It could be in a, uh, in a small vessel. Okay, wherever. How does it work? It activates the complement system the alternative system to be exact, and it produces, which produces C5A. And what did you learn from, inf uh, from inflam about inflammation? What is C5A? One of its functions. It's chemotactic to who? Neutrophils. So who do you think does the damage of type 3 hypersensitivity? Neutrophils do. And why are they there? Because the immune complex activated the alternative complement system. The immune complex really has very little to do with it, other than activating the complement system. It's neutrophils that do the eventual damage. And that was actually asked on boards. This is Hanox Schoenlein's purpura. If you felt this person's uh, legs would be palpable purpura, and this is what their blood vessels would look like. So that's type 3 hypersensitivity. Now, someone mentioned rheumatic fever. And there's the vegetations of rheumatic fever along the mitral valve. They're sterile. But if we took sections to them, we would see fibrin-like material in them without any bugs, fibrinoid necrosis. So the 
So it's the it's the necrosis of the immunologic disease. Okay? Little nodules on the extensive surface, let's say the person has morning stiffness. Mm-hmm. Has it a guess? Rheumatoid arthritis, and if we took a section for that, what type of necrosis would we say? Fibrinoid necrosis because it's immunologic damage. So fibrinoid necrosis is the necrosis of immunologic damage. Could be in a vessel, like a vasculitis, could be in a kidney, like a glomerulonephritis. Don't you think we're going to see fibrinoid necrosis and lupus glomerulonephritis? Good gracious, sure you are. If it involves immune complexes, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Now, what do you see? Say something bad. Bad. What organ? Good. Now, let me show you some anatomy here, and then we'll get to the fatty change, which is what we're really going to be talking about. This is the triad area. Triad means what? Three. So there's three structures. Okay? Portal vein. What's the other vessel? Hepatic artery. What's the next one? Bile duct. Those are your triad. Now remember, the liver is unique and that has a dual blood supply. Okay? And so the hepatic vein and hepatic artery and portal vein will dump their blood where? Into sinusoids. So the liver is an example of a sinusoid organ. What are some other sinusoid organs? Bone marrow. Spleen or also has sinusoids in them, too. That's histology. Okay. What's characteristic of sinusoids? Gaps. Gaps between the endothelial cells where there's just absolutely nothing there so that things can fit through them. Like what? Red blood cells, inflammatory cells, as opposed to glomerular basement membrane, which is fenestrated. That means, it, that means it has little tiny pores right through the cell. Okay, that's little windows that go through the actual cell. Whereas in sinusoids, they have gaps between the, the cells of the endothelium. So actual large cells can get through them. That's not true of the glomerular basement membrane. I mean, it's totally intact, except it's got these little pores, little windows that can go through it for filtration. They're totally different histologically than sinusoids. These are simple little things that are commonly asked on boards that test your knowledge of histology, which is the least important thing on the boards. All right, here's your sinusoids. So, so, so uh, portal vein blood and hepatic artery blood are, are, are dribbling through these sinusoids, and eventually they will be taken up by this little vessel here, which is called the central vein. The central vein becomes the, finish the sentence, hepatic vein, which empties into, finish the sentence, inferior vena cava, which goes back to, right side of the heart. So there's a communication, therefore, isn't there, between the right side of the heart and the liver. Yes? So if you have right heart failure and blood builds up behind the failed heart, what's going to happen to, to, to this little structure right over here? It's going to be congested with blood and we're going to get with the so-called nutmeg liver or congestive hepatomegaly. It's all related to each other. And then if you've seen the high yields, you already know they've had MRIs where you had to identify where the hepatic vein is. So that was easy because all you had to do was look for that vessel, whatever looked like a vessel going into the interior vena cava. That was the hepatic vein. Then they ask questions about what if you block the portal vein, what happens to the liver? Nothing. Because it's before the liver. Well, if you block the hepatic vein, but Chiari syndrome, what happens to the liver? It gets really congested. They want so obviously when they ask questions like that, what are they after? Do you know the blood flow through the liver? That's it. 
Now, here's a concept. Which part of the liver is most susceptible to injury? Normally, this part around the central vein. Why? Because this part gets first divvies on the oxygen coming out of through the sinusoids. That's called zone one. And then zone two, which would be right about in here. That's where a yellow fever likes to hit. Mid-zone necrosis. Yellow fever. Ides aegypti. Okay, that'd be here. They get the next divvies on it. And by the time it gets to zone three, which is around the central vein, it's kind of like the renal medulla. Getting only 10% of the blood supply, cortex gets 90. Well, this is, the, this is analogous to the renal medulla. Notice where the fatty change is. All around zone three. So I'm going to ask you a question. When they ask the question about acetaminophen toxicity, and they ask you what part of the liver is most effective, we will say the part around the central vein. Why? Because it gets the least amount of oxygen, so it really would not have a chance to combat free radical injury. You with me? Concepts. Concepts. What's the most common cause of fatty change? Alcohol. Okay, there's your metabolism of alcohol. Look at it, please. Okay. Now you're going to go through this. Uh, again, we'll go through it again and get this also in biochemistry. Okay? The big thing I want you to see is NADH is all over the place and acetyl-CoA. Acetate. Acetate's a fatty acid, guys. Acetyl-CoA can be converted into fatty acids. In the cytosol, remember? Okay. Now, NADHs are part of the metabolism, guys, of alcohol. So what does that mean in terms of biochemical reactions? A lot, guys. What caused pyruvate to form lactate and anaerobic glycolysis, please? The NADH drove it that direction. So what type of metabolic acidosis is always seen in alcoholics, please? Lactic acidosis. Why? Mechanism. The increase in NADH drives it in that direction. And so you know if pyruvate is forced to become lactate, then you also know that in a fasting state, an alcoholic's going to have trouble making glucose by gluconeogenesis because you need pyruvate to start it off. But if it's forced to become lactate, you've got a problem. So you automatically can figure out. And alcoholics have fasting hypoglycemia. Not only that, what else can we make with acetyl-CoA? Ketone bodies. Acetoacetyl-CoA, HFG-CoA, huh? Acetoacetic acid, beta-hydroxybutyric acid, huh? And which of those two keto acids do you think you're going to see in an alcoholic? Acetoacetic or beta-hydroxybutyric? Beta-hydroxybutyric because it's an NADH-driven reaction. So what two types of metabolic acidosis do you see in an alcoholic, please? You see lactic acidosis because you're driving pyruvate into lactate. And you're getting increase in synthesis of ketone bodies because of the excess acetyl-CoA. And what's the main keto acid, please? Beta-hydroxybutyric acid. Very good. Just got two or three more questions on boards. Now let's get to why it produces fatty change. Ooh, okay. This is glycolysis, guys, around reaction four. We get these little simple intermediates here. We got our little friend dihydroxyacetone phosphate. Look at our little NADH reaction. Whoa, and it's forcing it to become glycerol 3-phosphate, which will be a big-time board question. You've heard of the glycerol shuttle? Glycerol 3-phosphate shuttle for NADH, you get ATP? Well, that's what it's famous for. We know another thing it's famous for. It's the carbohydrate backbone for making triglyceride. 
All you got to do is add three fatty acids to glycerol, three phosphate, voila, we got triglyceride. And since we're talking about the liver, what do you think that that this 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 lipid fraction is in the liver? VLDL, very low density lipoprotein. That's where our endogenous triglyceride is synthesized in the liver. From what? Glycerol 3 phosphate. Derived from what? Glycolysis. Now, this would sound like heresy. Would restricting fat decrease the synthesis of VLDL? Of course not. Would restricting carbohydrates reduce the synthesis of VLDL? Absolutely. Because it's a glucose intermediate that it's made from. Glycerol, free phosphate, is a product of glycolysis. And so you can see why now fatty liver is most commonly due to alcoholism. Okay, because of this reaction here, which is on boards. Okay. Ten minutes. It's unfortunate that you didn't have biochemistry before me, but that's the way it goes sometimes. A lot of our in, my integrations involve all subjects. You know, farm, you've already seen some farm, you've seen some histo, you've seen some a lot of biochemistry, and you've seen some physiology already. So actually, you, you understand a little bit better if you've had those things before, and they can't always stick me at the end of every single board review. There's other ones around the country that I have to do. And so uh, it's unfortunate. Those that have had biochemistry before, you're able to follow me a little bit better on these things. But these things will begin making more sense uh, when you have your biochemistry. In terms of keto acid synthesis and fatty acid synthesis, you're probably a little bit um, weak on this. I'm actually writing a book on biochemistry with another guy. <laughs> and so uh, I'm kind of up on this right now because I just finished doing this stuff in the book. <laughs> okay, so I have an advantage in that, in that I've, uh, I'm pretty up on this stuff at this particular time. In fact, I finished the last chapter yesterday on the plane, which was held up. I'm showing another. What is this? This is a liver. It's fatty change. So which of these two kids has the fatty change? The one on the right. Because the one on the right has? Quashiorcor. Big deal. What's the mechanism? Okay, I'm going to give you a hint. When you make VLDL and you want to get it out of the liver, don't you have to put a protein around the outside of it? Yes or no? And what do we call those proteins? Apoproteins. That's your hint. What's the problem in Quashiorcor? A decrease in protein intake. They have, they have an adequate number of calories, but it's all carbs. And so they can't get the VLDL that they make in the liver out of it because they have no apolipoprotein to cover it and put it out into the bloodstream and solubilize it in, in water. See, lipids and water don't mix. You all know that. And so you have to put protein around a lipid for it to, to dissolve in water. Okay, so that's why the big protuberant abdomen that kids with quashiorcor have it due to two reasons. One, that decreased protein, which decreases onchotic pressure, and you get ascites. That's one reason. But the biggest reason is they have huge livers related to fatty change. And the mechanism of this is different than an alcohol. In alcohol, it's related to increasing synthesis of the LDL for the mechanisms we just talked about. In this case, it's due to lack of protein. Uh, that to put around the VL deal to get it out of the liver, 
And so that's the reason for the fatty chains here. So mechanisms, mechanisms. Okay, there's a whole section in there uh, that I'm not talking about, that uh, one, and it deals basically with hemosiderin. Uh, the section, this has nothing to do with hemosiderin, so don't look at this and think about where's the hemosiderin, there ain't any, it's calcium up there. Uh, the discussion that I'm not going to do right at this point is uh, I'm dealing with hemosiderin and ferritin. All I'll basically say at this point is that uh, ferritin is a soluble form of circulating iron. That's a wonderful marker for uh, your iron, the amount of iron you have in your bone marrow. Would be the test of choice for diagnosing any iron-related problem like iron deficiency, anemia, chronic disease, or iron overload diseases like hemochromatosis, hemosiderosis, get a serum ferritin. It'd be elevated. And the iron overloads would be decreased in iron deficiency. So that's a soluble form of iron storage. Hemosiderin is an insoluble form. And it's uh, usually stored in macrophages in the bone marrow. That's all I'm going to say at this point. You can stain it with a stain called Prussian blue, and it'll show up. Now, so let's do this. Um, types of calcification. We have two types, dystrophic and metastatic calcification. Now, dystrophic, what's this mean? Abnormal. Dysmenorrhea, you know, painful abnormal menses. Uh, dysmia. Difficulty breathing, dysphagia, difficulty swallowing. Then you have to decide whether it's solids, liquids, both, whatever. Okay, so dystrophic means abnormal calcification. It means that you've had damaged tissue and it gets calcified. And if you have any damaged tissue, calcium can, can calcify it. You play football, you got a big giant hematoma in your thigh, let's say. You had a good chance of that getting calcified dystrophically, the calcium will, will bind into that and produce calcium deposits. Now, you saw an example of dystrophic calcification already. Could you please tell me what it was? It was enzymatic fat necrosis. Remember I showed you those little chalky areas? That's a good example of dystrophic calcification. Okay. The serum calcium is totally normal, just that you damage tissue, and calcium loves to, to um, calcify damaged tissue. It happens in an atheromatous plaque, too. A lot of the real, really serious damage in atherosclerosis is the dystrophic calcification part of it. And, uh, and that would, that's what makes them they're so hard to uh, uh, dissolve. The only way you can get rid of dystrophically calcified blood vessels is to be on an incredible diet called the Ornish diet. And you can actually reverse calcified atheromatous plaques with that diet. But boy, <laughs> you've got to be some kind of unbelievable. I mean, that's, that's purest of the pure veggie and diets that exist. But you can't reverse it. But calcium does a bad job on your vessels. Okay, so this is an example of dystrophic calcification. It's also the most common cause of aortic stenosis, because this is aortic valve. It's also the most common cause of a certain type of hemolytic anemia, which we'll discuss when we get to it. Is anything abnormal with these valves? How many valves should you have in aortic ice? Three. How many do you see? Two. So two are doing a job of three, huh? And so because two are doing the job of three, they get damaged and they get dystrophically calcified. That's what this is right here. And it narrows the orifice of the aortic valve producing aortic stenosis. Okay. Right now we're interested in just recognizing processes now. We do aortic stenosis again when we get to the systems. A lot of you running up here, you know, and, and through, I, I mention a lot of these things in advance, but then we go through systems and we hit these things again. Right now you're getting the vocabulary that you're going to need 
to go through systemic pathology. Okay. I'm just, a lot of times we'll give you some advanced information, uh, which we go over again. Now, sometimes if you have hypercalcemia or hyperphosphatemia, either one, calcium could be actually uh, um, uh, made to uh, deposit in normal tissue. That hasn't been damaged. Could you please tell me, if someone had hypercalcemia in this room right now, what would you have? What would be the cause of it? Primary hyperparathyroidism would be the most common cause of hypercalcemia in us here. But what if we were in a hospital right now and we got a consult to work up hypercalcemia? What would it be? Malignancy-induced hypercalcemia. That is correct. Because you have hypercalcemia, you can actually put calcium in normal tissue. That's called metastatic calcification. Dystrophic, it's damaged tissue with a normal serum calcium. Whereas in metastatic calcification, it's a high calcium or high phosphorus. Now, some of you may not know, but when you deposit calcium in bone, it's the phosphorus part of the solubility product that drives calcium into bone. So if you have high phosphate levels, very dangerous, because it will take calcium and drive it into normal tissue. That's why when they have renal failure and they have high phosphate levels in renal failure, they have to dialyze off the phosphate, because that phosphate is going to be driving calcium into normal tissue, like your heart, your conduction system there, into renal tubules and the basement membrane. That's called nephrocalcinosis and damage things. So dystrophic and metastatic calcification, two terms that you need to know. Most of the time, we're going to be dealing with dystrophic calcification. I just picked this one uh, to show you. So this is a congenital bicuspid aortic valve. is the most common cause of aortic stenosis in the United States. should have three valves. When we have two, they get damaged because they're doing all the work. Okay, anything abnormal with this smear? Say yes. Okay, now this is dealing with a defect in the cell membrane. Name it. Spectrum. This is spherocytosis. Okay, if you can't see a central area of pallor, guys, it's a spherocyte. If you can't see a central area of pallor, like a donut, it's a spherocyte. Now you'll see why when we do hematology. That's tomorrow. We'll start it. But I want to just mention it now when we talk about cell membrane defects, which is part of this particular chapter on cell injury. There's a, one of the classic cell membrane defects is the absence of spectrin in the red blood cell membrane, uh, allow, causing the red blood cell not to be able to form a biconcave disc. You need spectrin in order to keep a biconcave disc. If it's defective, then it forms a sphere, that cell. That's the defect that you want to remember. Spectrin, spherocytosis. In fact, they both begin with SP. Okay, spectrin, spherocytosis. Okay, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger will probably be in this movie, although I hear he's trying to get out of that role model, you know, for uh, destroying everything. And um, it's going to be called the ubiquinator. And this is a concept here of ubiquitin. Ubiquitin is a stress protein, probably in us right now, maybe you more than me, I'm not as stressed probably as you, um, your ubiquitin levels are pretty high. It's a stress protein. And at some of your intermediate filaments, which you should know what they are, intermediate filaments are things like keratin, desmin, vimentin. These are part of the superstructure of our cells that keep our cells, you know, from collapsing on themselves and being one big protoplasmic mass. 
Okay, they're called intermediate filaments. Okay, they're like the the uh, the frame of a house that upon which the building is made. We have intermediate filaments are the frame upon which things are built uh, for a cell. Um, when they get damaged, then uh, they the uh, ubiquitin ubiquinates it. Okay, in other words, marks it for destruction. That's where Arnold Schwarzenegger comes in because he goes around and looks. For all those intermediate filaments, he sees those that have been tagged, ubiquinated, and destroys them. And some of these ubiquinated products have names, actually. This one is a liver. Now, fatty change and alcoholism is as simple as if you can recognize a, a open space and you know it's liver tissue, what do you think it is? It's a fatty liver. Okay. I mean, that, that, this is not for pathologists, this exam. This is for second-year medical students. Okay, so if you got a liver and you see a space is in it, that's fatty change. And if you play odds on it, always play the odds alcohol. Okay, so you see a space here. So what does that mean? Fat, which means alcohol. Therefore, these pink things that you see here probably are the pathology. They probably have an arrow to them. These are called Mallory bodies. And that's an example of ubiquinated that the, uh, the filament that's damaged is keratin. And so it forms what are called Mallory bodies, which we use uh, histology to say, hey, this patient has alcoholic hepatitis. We see these Mallory bodies here in fatty change. So that actually has a name that helps us. Okay, so Mallory bodies are an example of an ubiquinated neurofilament. Now, this one's been asked on boards a lot. This is a silver stain. These are neurofibrillary tangles. Okay, and it was a tricky question. I had to look it up because I did not know the answer when I heard about it on a student's exam. I thought they were going to they were going to put it in the context of Alzheimer's disease, where it's loaded. But neurofibrillary wasn't one of the choices. Okay, I came down to two diseases. I think one was Huntington's chorea, and the other one was uh, Jakob Kutzfeld disease. Were the only two that I could I could narrow it down to. The other ones clearly weren't associated with neurofibrillary. Turned out that Huntington's didn't, but in Jakob Kutzfeld you had can form neurofibrillary tangles. So you will see that uh, listed uh, in one of your high yields there. Uh, that was very tricky, very unfair, but that's the way the game is sometimes. Okay, So you're not always going to get the 99 percentile on this test. They're always going to throw in something to ruin your perfect score. Okay, And so that's how they tried to do that. But you know what's interesting? A lot of those things that they ruin people's perfect scores with are in your high yield. Whoa. So that decreases the that, that, that decreases the chance of, of getting you, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Remember the tau protein? The tau, T-A-U protein, is associated with neurofibrillary tangles. Well, that's an example of an ubiquinated neurofilament. Okay? And this one here is a, uh, well, you tell me. You've had neuroanatomy. Is that pigment? Yeah. So what do you think this is? Substantia nigra. What do you think disease we're talking about? Parkinson's, there you go. And here's a little inclusion. Some of you thought that was a nucleus. They're not red color. They're blue color. That is an inclusion called a Lewy body, seen in Parkinson's disease. What's the neurotransmitter deficient here? That's on every board. Dopamine, there you go. Dopamine, okay. So um, the Lewy body is an example of an ubiquinated thing. So a couple interesting things here. Of course, this is also uh, a neurofilament that's been damaged. So we have neurofibrillary tangles, Lewy bodies, and Mallory bodies, all uh, an example of ubiquination. 
Now, this is big, 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 big. I can't say it. Big times to the, to the, to the power. Important. Okay? You've got one sheet of paper that has it all. But before we do, cell cycle, which you already should have had. This should not be new stuff. You did have cell biology, did you not? I don't know. How do you spell that? Well, it's cell biology. <laughs> You've had it, I hope, cell cycle. Okay. All right. But before we do this, uh, let's, uh, let's make sure you know the three types of cells, which is histology. One, you have a, a, um, a cell that is, what I'm, I'm blocking out, it's stable. Uh, uh, what did you say? Labile. I knew that. Okay. Labile cells or label cells. What does that mean? It means it's a cell that the division is, is via a stem cell. Okay. I said stem cell, now you stop talking to me. Name three tissues that have stem cells. Bone marrow, skin, basement membrane of skin. Remember, germinal cell or basement membrane layer. Three, the crypts, the base of the crypts and the intestine. All have stem cells in them. And they have a tendency of being in the cell cycle a lot. So you had pharmacology and you knew about you know, a lot of drugs that are cell cycle specific and some that are cell cycle non-specific. Recall? So what do you think would be those cells most affected by those drugs? The label cells that are in the cell cycle the most, right? And so isn't it true that most of the time when you had Trevor? Trevor? Okay. God, somebody is it Trevor? I don't know. I've never heard of him. Okay. And that was that guy that says he's from England. Okay, but he's from England, Arkansas. We all know that. We know that that, that fake accent of his. <laughs> He's a fake. He's a fake. I'm just trying to expose him. He's basically trained over there with Kreb. He got that little English dialect, which made him sound a lot smarter than where he's really from, England, Arkansas. Okay? And then he tries to pass it off that he's British. Right. Okay. We're good friends, by the way, so don't worry about it. He knows about this. I always do this. Okay. Does it make sense? That when you talk about bone marrow suppression with these different drugs that block the cell cycle, doesn't that make sense you get bone marrow suppression since there are stem cells there? Okay. Uh, diarrhea, mucositis, and all that kind of stuff, doesn't that make sense? Aren't there stem cells there? And all these kinds of rashes that occur on the skin. And then also, what was the other one? We have the GI tract diarrhea. Don't forget diarrhea all the time. Aren't there stem cells there? So there's nothing magic about those complications, are there? Because they have stem cells. And those cells that are in the, in the cycle the most are the ones that would be most affected by cell cycle specific or non-specific drugs. That make sense? So we have label cells and we have uh, stable cells. Stable cells are in the geo phase. They're in the resting phase. Most of our parenchymal organs, liver, spleen, kidney, um, in terms of muscle, uh, only smooth muscle. The other muscles are, are, not, are not stable cells. Uh, stable cells um, will do the division, but most of the time they're resting in a geophase, and something has to stimulate them to get into the cell cycle and divide. Okay? It could be a growth hormone. It could be some kind of hormone that does it, like estrogen, for example. If a woman in the proliferative phase of her menstrual cycle, then her endometrial cells would have been initially in a geophase, and then when estrogen came up, 
uh, uh, it stimulated the GO cells to go into the cell cycle. Okay, so that would be the stimulator for it. Most of the time, it's some kind of growth factor or hormone. So they can divide, but most of the time, they have to be invited to do that by some hormone or growth factor. Those are stable cells. Permanent means they can no longer get into the cell cycle. They have been permanently differentiated, and they no longer can get into the cell cycle. Um, the other types of muscle, striated and cardiac, fit that. Also, neurons uh, uh, are, are permanent cells. You lose a neuron, it's gone. With the stem cell stuff now, it's possible to be able to get neurons in there now, uh, potentially, because a stem cell uh, uh, research, and it can basically become whatever it wants. So we don't know where that's going. But permanent cells can't get into the cell cycle. So what's the only muscle that is not a permanent tissue? Smooth muscle. Now, see, the reason why you know this, have to know this, is the term hypertrophy and hyperplasia. Hyperplasia means an increase in number, hypertrophy in size. Would a permanent cell be able to undergo hyperplasia? No, because that means more copies of it. But could it potentially undergo hypertrophy? Yes, but it can undergo hyperplasia. Can a smooth muscle cell undergo both? Hyperplasia and hypertrophy. Yeah, now you're catching on. Now you're catching on. There you go. These are little things that the board people think about. They just sit around, they have one hand, the right hand, usually in a vice. Now, someone that kind of goes in and they're in pain and they come up with these weirdo ideas when they're in pain to get, you, to get students. Okay? That's how they make up questions best when they're being tortured. Okay. Now, you learn that the most uh, variable phase of a cell cycle is the G1 phase. Okay, women, what's your most variable phase of the menstrual cycle? Is it your proliferative phase or is it your secretory phase? Which your proliferative phase that can vary the most? Just stressed? Well, I'd be willing to bet that that cycles are thrown off all over the place. And with stress, that's because your proliferative phase phase can be shorter or longer. But once you've ovulated, it's it's straight on from that. That doesn't change at all. So in other words, the proliferative phase would be kind of analogous to the G1 phase of the cell cycle, which can be shorter or lengthened in a cell. None of these other phases, S, G2, or M, they're written in concrete for that cell. So if I asked you, and like the boards would, if cancer cells, most of them have a longer cell cycle, in other words, it takes them longer to get through a cell cycle, what would be responsible for that? A longer G1 phase, there you go. Or if you had a cancer cell that had a shorter cell cycle than normal, then what would be the answer to that? A shorter G1 phase. So you see, I can put that into a clinical concept. G1 phase is kind of the mastermind of everything. Now, hopefully you learned about cyclin-dependent kinase. Okay, even though that's biochemistry, the term kinase, what does kinase always mean? Always. Phosphorylation. Okay, good. And phosphorylation usually involves a sending a message to something. Activating something, usually when you phosphorylate something, you activate something. Usually when you dephosphorylate something, you inactivate. Glucagon, I just learned this the other day, glucagon is a phosphorylator. Insulin is a dephosphorylator. That's why they're arch enemies. Okay? So, so glucagon is more likely to activate protein kinase, whereas insulin would dephosphorylate it and inactivate it. So remember, glucagon, phosphorylator, insulin, dephosphorylator. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Well, that really helped you, actually. I just learned that two days ago. Okay, so we have this thing, inactive cyclin D-dependent kinase. Well, who activates it? Well, cyclin D does. And who makes it? G1 phase makes cyclin D. Okay. 
So once cyclin D is made in the G1 phase, then it activates see, uh, the, this enzyme, the cyclin-dependent kinase. Now it's active. Okay, you with me so far? All right. Now, the key area in a cell cycle to control is from going from G1 to S phase. That's the absolute most critical area. Because if you had a mutation, and then you went into the S phase, and you duplicated it, then you have the potential for cancer. And so the real checkpoint, like we have in the security out here, and so I knew it, my God in heaven. I mean, it looked like, it looked like I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Boom. And so um, this is the key area right here, okay, getting into the S phase, because if something that's a mutation gets into it, we run the rest of cancer. There are two suppressor genes that control this. The RB suppressor gene, chromosome 13, makes a protein called RB protein. What does it do? Prevents the cell from going from the G1 to the S phase. That itself was a board question right there. So, how do we get G1 phase to go into the S phase? Watch. That's that active cyclin D-dependent kinase phosphorylates the RB protein, and when it phosphorylates it, it can go from the G1 phase into the S phase. But it's a problem. Don't you see a problem? Is that good that it can go into the S phase? Well, yeah, for something to divide. But what if there was a mutation? Would that be good? So who checks that enzyme, P53 suppressor gene? That's on chromosome 17. It makes a protein product that actually inhibits the cyclin D-dependent kinase. I can see what that would do. What would that do? If I inhibited this kinase, what would happen to the cell? Would it be able to go into the S phase? Yes or no? Okay, so RB suppressor gene. Suppressor means suppressor, right? What are we suppressing? It's ability to go from the G1 into the S phase. You with me? So RB suppressor gene, we see, prevented it, didn't we? So did the P53 suppressor gene prevented it because by blocking this enzyme, okay, we can't phosphorylate the RB protein that's going to remain in the G1 phase. The P53 suppressor gene is the number one most important gene for cancer, human cancer. Number one. Numero uno. Big time. In fact, the human papillomavirus, this is a neoplase, so don't start looking for it. Human papillomavirus inactivates uh, the uh, RB suppressor gene and the P53 suppressor gene. That's a, that's a nasty little, little virus, the human papillomavirus. Makes two gene products. Hopefully you even learned these in microbiology, E6 and E7. E6 knocks off the P53 and E7 knocks off the RB suppressor gene. That's incredible. All right, can you understand now, if I knock off by, let's say, a point mutation, an RB suppressor gene, what's going to happen? Think. What did it normally do? It made an RB protein to prevent the cell from going into the S phase. So what's the answer? What's going to happen if you knock off the RB suppressor gene? No RB protein. What's to prevent it from going into the S phase? Nothing. Therefore, you run the risk of cancer. Could you name a couple? How about retinoblastoma, <laughs> for which it stands? Well, what if you were a kid and you had some uh, pain in and around your knee? What cancer would that be? Osteogenic sarcoma, Codman's triangle, sunburst appearance on x-ray, remember? If you're a woman, okay, and you had a breast cancer, RB suppressor gene can be involved in that too. So it's not just retinoblastoma that it's associated with. Depending on your age bracket, it hits you at different areas. 
So you can see then, by knocking off the RB suppressor gene, you can get cancer. How about knocking off the P53 suppressor gene? Okay, what would that mean? Well, that mean that kinase would always be active, and you'd always be phosphorylating the RB protein, and that means you'd always be going into the S phase. Would that be good? No. So if you knock off either one of those genes, then what happens at the G1 phase? goes into the S phase. The P53 is actually called the guardian of the cell. I really like that term because you know what really, why it, it inhibits it from going into the G1 phase? Let me tell you why it does it. It, 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 it gives the cell time to detect if there are any abnormalities in DNA. You know, a splicing defect, some codon thing, whatever. Okay? And so we have DNA repair enzymes, as you'll learn, that can splice out those abnormalities and correct it, and then the cell's all ready to go then into the S phase. If the cell has been damaged too much in its DNA, then it's actually removed by apoptosis. And so that's why it's such an important gene, because it gives the cell an opportunity to clean itself up DNA-wise before, it uh, before it goes into the S phase. Pretty, pretty clever. Okay, so these are the two very important genes that control the cell cycle. You are guaranteed a number of questions, maybe two, three, four questions related to this. Now, the S phase means synthesis phase. That's where everything's doubled. That includes DNA, chromosomes. So you're 4N at this point. You were 2N and G1. Now you're 4N. You're double. That double the chromosomes. Everything's doubled. If you were muscle, you'd have double the number of contractile elements. Everything's doubled. G2 phase is where you make a tubulin. Tubulin is the protein from which you make the, uh, the uh, microtubule for the mitotic spindle. That's blocked by etoposide and by bleomycin. And then you have M for mitosis. Okay? And mitosis is where the cell divides into two 2N cells. And uh, the cell can either go into a geo-resting phase, or the cell can continue going on in the cycle and divide again, or it could be permanently differentiated, depending on how it wants to go. Okay? Very important. The students have problems, including me, with, um, you have to know the normal, otherwise you'll never understand this thing. If you knock off the RB suppressor gene, no RB protein, then there's nothing to prevent it from going into the S phase. Not good. That one's easy. The one that's harder is the P53. The P53 suppressor gene normally makes a protein that inhibits this kinase, and that way you prevent the RB protein from being phosphorylated, then it stays in the G1 phase and gives the cell an opportunity to correct the DNA defects. So if you knock it off, then who's in inactivating the kinase? Nobody. And so you end up constantly phosphorylating, and you constantly divide, 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 and you can end up with the potential for cancer. Okay? Very important. Very important. Now, where do the alkaloids work? Mitotic spindle. Paclitaxel. Come on, guys. You had pharmacology. Come on. Talk to me. Paclitaxel. End phase. Just watch where this thing is. I'll give you the answer. Okay? Okay? Colchicine. Etoposide. G2. Leomycin. Methotrexate. All right. S phase. Good. Okay. Griseofulvin. End phase. Okay. Must know. Must know. Guys, they've done it already. They put the cell cycle up, and this is A, B, C, and D, and E. Okay? Then they mention a drug, and you have to figure it out. 
patient has rheumatoid arthritis is a macrocytic anemia. Uh, the drug responsible for this is located, does what, in what phase of the cell cycle? You answer it. The answer would be N, that would be methyltrexate, blocking dihydrofolate reductase. Whoa, that's how they do it? Yes. Why did they just say methyltrexate? Where does it go? It's too easy. You can memorize it. So they'll give you a clinical scenario. Would you like another one? Kind of. All right. <laughs> you got a uh, HIV positive person that has dyspnea to kidney and white out of the lung. He's put on a drug and he ends up with uh, cyanosis. They say, where would the uh, drug have worked? Nowhere, because it's none of those drugs. <laughs> Forget about it. <laughs> That's all right. I didn't do that purposely. It's Datsun, and I don't know where I'm thinking about Datsun in this thing. But uh, let me see another one. Okay, this drug used to be used in the treatment of uh, acute gouty arthritis, but because of side effects, it's no longer used. Where would that one work? Emphase, what's the name of that drug? Colchicine. Very good. Okay. This drug is a, uh, a chemotherapy agent made from a U tree. Not U, Y-O-U, Y-E-W. It's just Paclitaxel, and that would be Emphase. Okay. Vinca alkaloids are made from uh, what? Uh, some kind of, uh, what, what are the vincas? Uh, uh, periwinkle plants. Okay. This is all stuff they ask on boards, guys. Okay, so you've got to know these things. Cell cycle is very important for farm, for cell biology, for neoplasia, must know. All right, last part of the cell injury are the different uh, growth alterations. Big time important. Big time important. The first one I like to deal with is atrophy. First, you know that the diagnosis is a decrease in uh, tissue mass, and the cell actually decreases in size, and, and kind of uh, it just has enough organelles in it to survive. So it has less mitochondria than normal, and it's just trying to eke it out until whatever it is that it needs to stimulate, it can come back. Okay? So when we think of atrophy, we have to think of a lot of different things. Okay? Uh, this is hydronephrosis, and, and, and you know what's actually causing this thinning of the cortex and medulla? Well, it's compression atrophy. Okay? What's the most common cause of hydronephrosis? You can see that the pelvis is dilated, a stone in the ureter. Okay, but they could ask you something this simple. They can put this up and they'll say, what's the growth alteration in this slide? The answer is it's atrophy. Because of the increased pressure on the cortex and medulla, that's going to produce ischemia. The blood flow is going to decrease, and that's going to produce atrophy of the renal tubules. So it's an example of atrophy. Okay? All right, here's a brain. This is not a brain that you would want, okay, because it's got hills and dales in here. You'd like it to be all hills and no dales, okay? And uh, this is an atrophy brain, okay? And this could be atrophy because of atherosclerosis, which would be the most common, but also could be atrophy because you have knocked off the neurons in it in layers 3, 5, and 6. Anybody give me an example of that? Alzheimer's disease, where you have degeneration of neurons, Okay, neurons are cells, guys. If they get destroyed, remember the cerebral cortex has its neurons in layers 3, 5, and 6. They get destroyed. Wouldn't that reduce the overall mass of the brain? Sure. So atherosclerosis could be a cause. Alzheimer's disease can be a cause. Okay, related to the uh, beta amyloid protein. 
which is toxic to neurons, and many other things causing that. This is muscle. Okay, and you can see this atrophy of the muscle here. Lots of things. Lou Gehrig's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. If you knock off the nerves to the muscle, you need nerve to constantly stimulate it so that it remains big, uh, the muscle. And so it undergoes atrophy or a leg in a cast. The one I like most, guys, though, is endocrine-related things. Okay, for if I have hypopituitarism, what would my adrenal gland look like? What part of my adrenal gland would be atrophied? Exactly, exactly. Cortex isn't good enough. Which layer of the cortex? Fasciculata and reticularis, that's right. Not the zona glomerulosa. Why is that? Because ACTH has nothing to do with stimulating aldosterone release. Fasciculata, remember, is where you make what? Cortisol, glucocorticoids and, and the... And a, uh, let's see, fascicular reticularis is where you make sex hormones. That's your 17 ketosteroids, testosterone, right? So ACTH is responsible for stimulating those things, but not, not the zona. So you'd have atrophy, the vesicular and reticularis. Guys, they already had a picture of the adrenal gland. And they had the, all the layers, A, B, C, and then they had medulla with D on it. And they asked all kinds of different questions. And you had to know which one of those were affected. Hmm? Hmm? Okay. So that's your histology, physiology, pathology, integration, which they just love. If I'm taking thyroid hormone, what's happened to my thyroid gland? It's atrophied. Why? Because I'm taking thyroid hormone, what is it doing to my thyroid-stimulating hormone? Decreasing it. I have nothing stimulating my gland. Therefore, it undergoes atrophy. There you go. Okay? All right. This was one on the boards right here. This, as they said, was a biopsy of the pancreas from a child with cystic fibrosis. And they said, what's the growth alteration present? Well, the answer is atrophy. Okay, I want you to look at these. These are tubules, and they're filled with this reddish stuff that's like concrete. Remember, cystic fibrosis, when you cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator on chromosome 7 is defective, then you can't, uh, then you have problems with secretions. They become thicker. Okay, and so it blocks the ducts like these are doing, and so that means then that the glands which are making the fluids in the pancreas, the exocrine part, if you block the lumen, there's a back pressure on them, and just like we had atrophy of the renal cortex and medulla from a back pressure related to urine, the same thing happens if you block the lumen of a duct, you get atrophy of the glands, and this is why you get malabsorption in all children with cystic fibrosis. So the answer is atrophy. That's through a lot of students, a lot of students, a lot of students. Okay, here we have uh, a aorta, okay? And we have uh, right over here, we have a uh, the atherosclerotic plaque, okay? So what's this kidney an example of? Atrophy, and what type of hypertension does this patient have? Renal vascular hypertension, what's the renin level coming out of this kidney, please? High, see, see? Should, they want you. You should have been able to look at this and be able to know what's that growth alteration. In fact, if you knock this one off, then what? The other one's doing all the work. They could just as easily point to the other kidney and say what growth alteration is there. Hypertrophy. Well, they can point to this one and say what's the renin level coming out of the renal vein? Increased. What's the renin level coming out of the renal vein? Decreased. Suppressed. All kinds of things. All kinds of things. Mm. Okay. But they like growth alterations. Or they can do this. 
They can point to this and say the growth alteration noted in this patient is similar to a growth alteration in, and then they have to find some other cause of atrophy, another thing that's related to atrophy. So in other words, you have to know that's an example of atrophy, and then they give you five choices, and you have to pick which one of those is also an example of atrophy. That's another way they do it. Maybe it could be one of these. Is that hard? Not really. But is it scary a little bit? Yeah. But now you know how they do it, don't you? So should it be as scary? Not when you already know how they do it, guys. I would not think so. Who should be scared? The people not taking this review. They have no idea what's on this test. They're looking at first aid for boards and stuff like that. You know, well, 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 they say, you know, well, I'm just going to study first aid for boards. They ain't going to make it. It's not enough. Not enough high yield stuff on first aid for boards to make it. Not enough. Not enough. They have no idea what's on the test. They don't have any idea how their questions are asked. Do you? Oh yeah, you're gonna you you're gonna you're gonna know by the end of end of Friday, you're gonna know all the little tricks. And they're all in your notes right there. Direct correlation. You read through page one to whatever the end is, you'll do extremely well. Unless you get nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so what a growth alteration is this? Hypertrophy, and this is a picture of what hypertrophied muscle is. Now, how would I do this one? Well, I would look at this thing and I would say, okay, this is an example of, uh, um, let's see, how would I do this? I might ask a question about what I would see. Maybe if I wanted to make the cell biology, I would say, what is the uh, N of this? Just 2N? Oh, let me give you a hint first. Okay, hypertrophy of a... Uh, of a cardiac muscle, which is a permanent muscle, the supposed block is uh, before the G2 phase. Okay, so now what would be the answer? What would be the number of, of chromosomes uh, in this one? Would this be a 2N, which is normal, a 1N, a 3N, or a 4N? 4N. Because if you block G2, just before G2, that's after the S phase and everything's doubled, then this muscle cell here would be 4N. So you just say it. They'll say 1N. That would be something like a sperm, okay, which would be 23 chromosomes. Then I'll put 2N, that'd be a normal diploid cell. 3N, that would be really bad because that means you probably have cancer or some trisomy disease, okay? And then 4N um, would be the answer in this. You have double the number, that's right. So I can do any number of things with this. So hypertrophy is an increase in size of the cell, not number, not number. We go further with this when we do cardiovascular. I play games with you. Hyperplasia, what is that definition? Number, it's an increase in number of cells, okay? This is a normal proliferative gland, okay? There's piles of mitoses all over the place here. And eventually what's going to happen is you're going to get endometrium mucosa kind of looking like that. So what's this an example of? Hyperplasia, because there's more of them, okay? That's why it's called proliferative phase, guys. You're increasing the number of endometrial glands. By increasing cell divisions, you're getting more cells dividing, more glands. Can you see why if you had unopposed estrogen, you can end up with cancer? Because if you didn't have progesterone to undo everything that estrogen did, you're going to get cancer. You're going to go from hyperplasia to atypical hyperplasia to endometrial cancer if you have unopposed estrogen. 
So that's a very important concept. Hyperplasia left unchecked. You run the risk for cancer. With one exception, lucky for us guys, this is the only good thing about prostate cancer. Prostate hyperplasia does not predispose to prostate cancer. So the worst thing you'll have is that you'll be getting up three times at night, like me. Okay? But I don't have to worry about prostate cancer deriving out of hyperplasia. Because they're two different processes, hyperplasia and prostate cancer. That's the only exception I know of, though. Here's some more examples. This is a gravid uterus. That's a woman's uterus after she's delivered. This is a, an example of 50-50, 50% hypertrophy of the smooth muscle cells in the wall of the, of the uh, uterus, and 50% related to hyperplasia. That's equal amount, both sides. This is a bone marrow. This would be a beautiful uh, uh, thing to throw at you. Okay, normally you should have three times as many white blood cells as red blood cells. Okay, well the only white blood cells I see are that one, that one, and that one. All the rest of these are red blood cells. So my question would be, I'd say, this is a uh, bone marrow aspirate from which of the following patients? Okay, so if there's an increase in RBCs, that's RBC what? Hyperplasia. Okay, would you expect to see that in iron deficiency? No because you're lacking iron to make RBCs. Would you expect to see it in thalassemia? No. Why? Because you have a defect in making globin change. Would you expect it to see it in someone with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease? Yes, because they have hypoxemia releasing a hormone. What would that hormone be, please? Erythropoietin. Where exactly is it made, please? I was on boards. It's made in the endothelial cell of the peritubular capillary. So this is a erythropoietin-stimulated marrow, guys. So they assume that you know it's RBC hyperplasia. Then it asks you a clinical scenario and say which one would it fit. Don't worry, you have questions in the, the questions I put down for you have things like that in it. So don't worry about it. I have all the examples of these things. Okay, what's this? Come on, guys. Everyone knows what this is on the elbow. Come on. Psoriasis. So this is a histologic section of psoriasis. See these little white silvery scales? That corresponds to this right over there. Does that, that look like normal skin? Say no. So what is psoriasis an example of? Hyperplasia. It's an unregulated proliferation of squamous cells in your skin. And so you get this raised red plaque with silvery scales on it corresponding to this excess in stratum corneum. It's hyperplasia. Unregulated. That's why methotrexate can work in it, because it's cell cycle specific to the ES phase, and it prevents the, the basal cells from proliferating. Ooh, I'm getting this. I'm getting this. I'm starting to get this. I hope so. We're only almost, what, two hours into this? Where are we? Three. You should start to get the idea of how they ask things. Now, that should either scare you or make you confident. Okay? It's one of the two. Most of you get scared. So, oh, I didn't know that. But now you do. Think about what you know now. Yeah, I'd be scared if I didn't know what was on the test. I'd be less scared if I had some idea what was on the test. Ooh. Okay. Depending on what your makeup is. I'm like most of you. I get scared. <laughs> but if I'm really, really 
studied up. I really didn't get too nervous about tests because I thought, well, what could they ask me that I haven't studied? I always thought they have a chance. We didn't have board reviews when we took national boards either. Okay, now, this is a cool one, okay? This is the prostate gland, and that's the bladder. Okay? So this prostate gland probably looks like this. So what do you think the process is over here on the prostate gland? Hyperplasia. See, a lot of you think it's prostate hypertrophy because you have pathologists that don't know dork from dork sign out your prostate uh, 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 curettings. Any pathologist that writes prostate hypertrophy ought to go back to school again. It's not hypertrophy of glands and smooth muscles, it's hyperplasia. It's a hormone-related thing. All hormone-stimulated glands undergo hyperplasia, not hypertrophy. So you have hyperplasia of the prostate gland, but look at the wall of the bladder. It's too thick. Why is it too thick? Now think of it trying to get urine through this narrow opening in the urethra there. Think it's having to work. What happens to muscle when it works? Ah, so the bladder wall is thickened because of hypertrophy of smooth muscle cells related to an increase in afterload, concept in cardiovascular phys, and this is hyperplasia of the prostate gland with hypertrophy of the bladder wall related to smooth muscles. They wouldn't do that. Why do you think I put it up there? Oh, yeah, they could do that. Oh, yeah. The last one is, uh, not, not last, next to last, is metaplasia. Metaplasia is a replacement of one adult cell type by another. Okay, so here's an esophagus, part of stomach, and this is all ulcerated away. We take a section through where, right at the edge of this mucosa here, and we can see that there are mucus-secreting cells here and goblet cells. Is that what should be present in the lower esophagus, glandular cells? Yes or no? What should be there? squamous, but they're glandular and mucus secreting. So is that, what's that an example of? Metaplasia, glandular, and it's got even a name. Name it. Barrett's esophagus. Did you know that Barrett's esophagus is a precursor for adenocarcinoma? And that adenocarcinoma, the distal esophagus, has surpassed squamous cell carcinoma of the mid-esophagus is the most common esophageal cancer in the United States. So gastroesophageal reflux disease is now the number one precursor for uh, esophageal cancer. And instead of it being squamous, it's an adenocarcinoma. Time to break. Okay, let's uh, continue. Okay, what's the lining of your main stem bronchus, please? What's the lining of your main stem bronchus, please? Ciliated columnar, pseudostratified columnar. So if you were a smoker, then what would be an example of a metaplasia? Squamous, that's right. If it underwent squamous, metaplasia. Okay, how about this one? Uh, let's say I had increased goblet cells in the main stem bronchus, which is seen in all smokers. Is that an example of hyperplasia or metaplasia? It's hyperplasia because you normally have goblet cells in the main stem bronchus, but also smokers have goblet cells in the terminal bronchioles. Is that an example of hyperplasia or metaplasia? Metaplasia, because there aren't normally goblet cells in a terminal bronchial. See, they, they could ask questions like this because this proves whether you know histology or not. If you have goblet cells in the stomach, would that be uh, normal or would that be abnormal? 
abnormal. They should be present in the intestine. They should not be present in the small intestine. So that would be called glandular metaplasia. And that is a precursor for adenocarcinoma of the stomach. What's the most common cause of adenocarcinoma of the stomach? Helicobacter pylori. So because Helicobacter pylori produces uh, a damage to the pylorus and antral mucosa, produces a chronic atrophic gastritis, with intestinal glandular metaplasia, that's the precursor lesion for adenocarcinoma. So what you're seeing here is that hyperplasia left unchecked could potentially produce cancer. For example, endometrial hyperplasia is the most common precursor lesion for endometrial adenocarcinoma, and that's usually due to unopposed estrogen. Okay? Exception is prostate hyperplasia does not progress into prostate cancer. Okay, but we can also see that metaplasia can go through a process uh, ending up as cancer. Let's take lung. Okay, uh, ciliated columnar epithelium becomes squamous, squamous metaplasia. And then you get what is called squamous dysplasia. We'll see a picture of that in a second. And then from dysplasia, uh, the, uh, the squamous epithelium can go into cancer, squamous carcinoma. So you can have that progression too. Okay, and the esophagus and the distal esophagus, it went from squamous to a glandular epithelium because squamous epithelium can't handle acid. So it needs, needs mucus secreting epithelium as a, as a defense against the acid injury. Okay, but unfortunately that glandular metaplasia can go on into an atypical metaplasia and go on into an adenocarcinoma of the distal esophagus. So some of these things are precancerous types of, of processes. Now, in parasitology, you'll know about the one in the bladder, right? There's only two, two parasites that actually produce cancer. One's Clonorchis sinensis producing cholangial carcinoma. That's the Chinese liver fluke. And this one, which is in the bladder, this is schistosoma hematobium, okay? And so it causes the transitional epithelium to undergo squamous metaplasia. And from squamous metaplasia, squamous dysplasia, and from squamous dysplasia, squamous cancer. There you go. So it converted transitional epithelium to squamous, that's the metaplasia part, then that went under dysplasia and became a squamous cell carcinoma. There's lots of these different ones, and I got most of the, uh, those, uh, those progressions uh, down there for you that are important. This is dysplasia, okay, dysmember is abnormal. Dysplasia is actually an, a, an atypical hyperplasia, actually. Okay. Now, they don't expect you to be pathologist, but I think anyone would know if this is squamous epithelium, it's distinctly abnormal. I mean, it's lacking order to it. We have nuclei that are big up near the surface. Man, it's the basal cell layer that does the dividing. Why should the cells at the top you know, be bigger than the ones that are the ones that are dividing? So you can see that it's lax orientation. I don't think it requires a pathologist to figure out this is abnormal. Okay. And if they say this is a cervical biopsy in a woman that has a human papillomavirus infection, or they say this is a uh, main stem bronchus biopsy, I mean, you should be able to tell that this is dysplastic. They're not going to say, you know, severe, moderate, mild. That's pathology. How many are you going to become pathologists? Not a whole lot of you. But you should be able to know that dysplasia is a precursor for cancer, be it glandular dysplasia or be it squamous dysplasia. It's a precursor for cancer. What's the precursor for squamous cell carcinoma of the skin, guys? It's right over here. I'll give you the last one that I heard about. It was very clever. A farmer that had a lesion on the back of his neck 
which they said he scraped off, and then three months later, it grew back. Well, this is what grew back. So what's, what was it? What was the answer to that one? This is actinic keratosis, another name, solar keratosis. And it's a, it's a precursor for squamous cell carcinoma in the skin. Not basal cell, squamous cell. I think you can see that there's some abnormal squamous epithelium here. And so this is actinic keratosis, another name, solar. This is UVB light, damaged skin. It was clever, you know, scraped it off and then it grew back. Farmer, sun exposure. They always use farmers for this thing. Okay. Maybe the next one will be on his ear. Okay. And he scraped it off and it grew back. You know, they could do anything. Maybe it was on the face and he scraped it off and it grew back. And you know, it's a farmer who has exposure to sun. It's the same thing. The answer is it's actinic keratosis or solar keratosis. What's its significance? The precursor for squamous cancer. Maybe it was on the forearm. I mean, anywhere they want, they could put this. They could, they could, they could, they can, they can take this thing and probably find 50 areas in sun-exposed areas to ask this question. Okay, <laughs> still the same answer. Scraped it off, it came back in the sun-exposed area. Duh! I think it has something to do with sun exposure. In this case, not basal cell. Actinic keratosis doesn't predispose to a basal cell, squamous cell. Basal cells are more common than squamous cells. Okay. Inflammation is the next section. Now, you've had inflammation, or at least you should have. I have to, I have to look at what you got on immunology. In fact, I'll do that over lunch. Part of innate, innate defenses involves... When we get an infection, what happens and stuff like that. So this should be reasonably familiar. So I'm going to hit it more from the uh, pathology point of view and the stuff on inflammation at CS on boards. Okay? <clears throat> That's the bee sting. This exact picture was on boards. And I think probably uh, this little thing here was probably labeled A, and then this over here was labeled B. And maybe something way out on the edge was labeled C. That's about as far as you can go. Remember, they can go anywhere from three... A, B, C to, I forget what they can go up to, six or seven choices on uh, part one. Part two, you can get more than one answer. They might do select two, select four, and they, on part two, they, they do um, matching. Part one usually doesn't have matching. Sometimes they change. I don't know whether they're going to be doing that or not. So don't be surprised if you see four choices and sometimes, sometimes three choices or sometimes six or seven choices uh, for a question. But uh, only, they only single select. Okay, now, remember there's four of this Latin terms applied to acute inflammation. So let's go through these things. We see redness here, that's rubor. Okay, now who is the king of the vasodilators, of the chemical mediators in acute inflammation, guys? Histamine. Now what is it vasodilating? Arterioles. All right. So histamine is responsible for the redness of acute inflammation. This happens to be due to a bee sting. Okay. And uh, what is it? What is it working on? It's working on arterioles. Okay, if we felt this, it'd be hot. That's calor. What's that do to? Histamine again, because when you vasodilate, it's all in the notes. Well, everything is there. Right? And in fact, I can almost see it in my notes. There. Boom! People copying all this down. It's all there. Okay, uh, you vasodilate, that gives off heat. That's why an endotoxic shock, a septic shock, it, you get warm skin as opposed to cold skin. It's because you're vasodilating the arterioles. Okay, so again, histamine. Histamine is related to that. Two, all right. That's a the tumor of acute inflammation because it's a raised structure. 
What's that do to? Increased vessel permeability. Well, who increases vessel permeability in acute inflammation? Histamine. What vessel? Don't say arterial. Venial. That's right. So increased vessel permeability is in the venials. Think about it, guys. Is an arterial thicker than a venial? Yes or no? How are you gonna, how are you gonna get an exudate through an arterial? Well, it's got smooth muscle in it, a couple layers of that, an internal elastic line. Forget it. Okay? But a venial is very, very thin. It's just basically a, uh, endothelial cell, basement membrane. All you gotta do is drill a hole through the basement membrane, you're out. So increased vessel permeability doesn't occur at the arterial level, it occurs at the venial level. And um, histamine contracts the endothelial cells and leaves that basement membrane bare. And so you get increased vessel permeability, producing an exudate, swelling of tissue. That's the tumor of acute inflammation. Now this probably hurt. That's dolor. Histamine doesn't have anything to do with this. This is bradykinin. Remember, bradykinin is part of the kininogen system which is between Hageman's factor 12 and 11. So when you activate the, um, the uh, intrinsic pathway, you automatically activate the kininogen system. Because the moment you activate 12, Hageman's factor, that activates not only 11, but activates the kininogen system, and the end product of that is bradykinin. Who degrades bradykinin? Angiotensin-converting enzyme. I just made a correlation for you. Isn't it true that you get angioedema as one complication of an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor? Yes or no? Okay, so if you inhibit angiotensin-converting enzyme, what else are you inhibiting? The metabolism of bradykinin, which increases vessel permeability, producing the angioedema, the swelling of tissue. How it produces cough, I'm not exactly sure, but it also can produce cough. That's how they're asking farm questions lately. They'll give you some scenario and some side effect, and they'll say what drug is the patient on. That's how they've been doing it lately. Okay. All right. So, um, you know they're interested in this because I know they had this picture, and I know they had it labeled, and you had to, to, to tell uh, all these. So, bradykinin and PGE2 are the two things producing pain. So, that's the only one of the four... Uh, Latin terms for acute inflammation that's not due to histamine is the pain. Okay. Now, just very quickly going through the different things that happen in acute inflammation uh, is that uh, neutrophils uh, in the small vessels will begin uh, getting sticky because of adhesion molecule synthesis. Okay. So will the endothelial cells begin synthesizing adhesion molecules and eventually the neutrophils will stick to the endothelial cells, that's called pavementing, some people call it margination. And then they will go and look for bare basement membrane on those venules, and with what type of collagenase do you think they have? Type 4 collagenase, because what's the collagen? Type 4. So uh, neutrophils have type 4 collagenase, and they drill a hole through it. What else, what else has type 4 collagenase in it? Cancer cells. How do you think that they get through uh, and metastasize? They have to stick to endothelial cells, so they have to have adhesion molecules, usually against laminin in the basement membrane. They also, in order to get through the basement membrane, they have to have collagenase to get through. Okay? So cancer cells pretty much are like a neutrophil, the way it can get into tissue. A cancer cell has the same things for getting into tissue, to invade tissue. 
Okay, so when they get out out of the uh, small vessels, usually the venules, uh, they uh, emigrate. Okay, now they have to know what direction to go. Okay, so obviously all neutrophils have to be female in origin because they're the only ones that know directions. Okay, men, as you know, get lost and don't want to get direction. They'd rather be lost than stop and ask directions. You all know that. Okay. So, uh, it's directed chemotaxis. Okay? Now, could you name a couple of things that are involved in telling them where to go? C5A, LTB4 are chemotactic agents. In fact, they're also involved in making adhesion molecules on neutrophils. So it's kind of interesting that those things that make adhesion molecules also give directions to C5A and LTB4. Okay? So that's the normal sequence of things in acute inflammation. Now, we know that uh, if we have an infection, let's say Staph aureus that's producing acute inflammation, we know that the bacteria... Uh, are being prepared before they're getting uh, destroyed. And what's that process called, please? Opsonization. Could you please name two opsonizers? IgG and C3B. Okay. Okay, who can name a disease, sex-linked recessive child, where you're missing all immunoglobulins, including IgG? We would say gammaglobulinemia. And so what do you think the most common cause of death then is? Infection. Because you can't opsonize things. You may not have put that together. You may have known that it produces hypogammaglobulinemia, but you're not putting together what's the mechanism of the infection. The mechanism of the infection is they have no IgG to opsonize bacteria. Therefore, you can't phagocytose it. So you were three quarters there, but not all the way. And unfortunately, it's that last quarter they ask on boards. Why? Not what, why. That's how you think. That's how you study. Why, 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 why. Okay? Mechanisms. If you study everything that you have, have had all the way through and all the other things. Why, why, why. Mechanisms of the drugs. You know, all mechanisms, mechanisms, mechanisms. You annihilate this test. Annihilate it. And not interested in your memorization abilities. What is going to be very little part of the test. Single-step reasoning, I don't think exists on a, on a board examination. So it's two sets. And it's usually involves why, not what, why. They assume you know the what, they want to know why. Very important. Okay, so they're opsonized by IgG and C3B, so which means then that neutrophils must have receptors for those. Okay? And so we know that it's a neutrophil for acute inflammation. And what is it for chronic inflammation? The macrophage monocyte. Remember, monocytes, when they get tired of becoming a monocyte, become macrophages. Okay? And if they're couch potatoes, they want to be fixed macrophages. Okay? If they want to move around as a macrophage, then they'll be wandering ones, like alveolar macrophages and stuff like that. Okay? But anyway, so they would have to have receptors for those obstinates, IgG and C3B. It makes sense, doesn't it? So there's no memorization involved. That all makes sense. And then they're going to get phagocytosed. Okay, so this is a phagolysosome. And what will happen is when you phagocytose this bacteria, the lysosomes uh, will go down the microtubules and empty their enzymes into this. Okay, you learn about an interesting disease in biochemistry where because you can't phosphorylate mannose residues in the Golgi apparatus, 
and the enzymes cannot, there are no enzymes not to, uh, marked with the phosphorus on them, and so the lysosomes are empty, and that's called eye cell disease. That's good. They love that one. They love that one. Okay. And that involves that dolecol glycosaminoglycan type of stuff. Uh, kind of interesting stuff. Gets a little bit hairy in there, but they ask it. And Hanson, Hanson's very good. You guys are really lucky to have her. She's really a good lecturer, very clinically oriented biochemist. And so she's going to put some finishing touches on this stuff. And boy, you're really going to be ready. Ooh. And of course, you've got Paso, you know, doing his cardiovascular. He means sick. He wasn't sick. He couldn't have been sick. Paso's never sick. Paso's never sick. Tell him I said so. He wasn't sick. He just used some excuse. <laughs> I'm only kidding. <laughs> Good guy. All right. And so, and so here's his bacteria, Staph aureus, in a, in a hot tub. Okay, surrounded by enzymes. And you learn in microbiology all different kinds of ways that they can get, you know, evade destruction. What's interesting, things like chlamydia can actually get out of a phagolysisome. That's interesting. I'd like to know how it does that, a Houdini. Okay, but sometimes they have mucus around them and all kinds of things. Okay, and you learn about... The oxygen-dependent myeloperoxidase system, which is big-time boards, big-time, big-time, big-time boards. Okay, remember that oxygen, molecular oxygen, um, um, is converted by NADPH oxidase, which is in the cell membrane of neutrophils uh, and monocytes, but not macrophages. They lose that system. And notice there's a very important enzyme uh, cofactor, NADPH. Where is most NADPH synthesized? Commonly asked board question. Pentose phosphate shunt. And what's the enzyme responsible for that? That particular part of the reaction, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase. That's converting glucose 6-phosphate into 6-phosphogluconate. You're getting NADPH, and then you're getting a neutralizing factor for, for uh, free radicals. Name it. Glutathione. Okay. Make sure you know where we are. That's where the NADPH came from. And it's converting molecular oxygen into a free radical, superoxide. That's an unpaired electron, and it's out of orbit that gives off energy. That's called a respiratory burst, which can be measured by radiation detectors. But the one they like on exams is nitro blue, tetra, uh, the, uh, nitro blue tetrazoleum, NBT dye test. What they do is get a little test tube. And they add in this dye that's colorless, called N, as in Nancy, B as in boy, T as in Tom. They stick it into this test tube. And if, and if uh, neutrophils and monocytes are working okay, they'll phagocytose it, they'll have a respiratory burst, and that free radical oxygen will cause the color, a change to occur in the dye and make it colored, usually a bluish color. And then they take some of the neutrophils out, they smear them on a slide and they see if they see any color in the dye. And if they do, then they know that the respiratory burst is, is working. If they see that there isn't any color in the dye, that means they were not able. They did not have an, an, a respiratory burst system. And they know that they have chronic granulomatous disease of childhood. Okay. What happens to the free radical oxygen? It's converted by its uh, neutralizers, uh, superoxide, dismutase, and peroxide. Woo! You know, that itself could kill bugs. But this is something better than peroxide. And that is, is an enzyme called myeloperoxidase. You know those little red granules that you see in, in monocytes and little red granules that you see in neutrophils? You know those are lysosomes, right? That's what the little red, what you call as urophilic granules, those are lysosomes. You can see them in a peripheral blood. Okay? Myeloperoxidase is one of many enzymes in there. 
and it's going to catalyze a reaction, guys. It's going to combine peroxide together with chloride to form bleach. Ooh. Does bleach kill bugs? Big time. It'll kill you, too, if you drink it. Okay? It won't kill you, too. It'll kill anything. It's bleach. Whoa. So you can see why this is the most potent, potent bactericidal mechanism for killing things. The oxygen-dependent myeloperoxidase system. And what two cells have it? Neutrophils and monocytes. How about macrophages? No. They lose that system once they become a macrophage. They get punished. You don't get your oxygen dependent. What are you going to leave me with? Lysosomes. <laughs> you go out with a huff. I want to become a couch potato. Go ahead. Become a fixed macrophage if you want. By the way, what's the, uh, what's the macrophage of the central nervous system? Microbial cell. So what's the reservoir cell for CNS AIDS? The microbial cell. What's the reservoir cell in outside the CNS? The dendritic cell, which is a macrophage. And where is that located? In the lymph nodes. That should not be... <gasps> okay. Those are in your high-yield stuff. Under microbiology and immunology. Okay. Can you see something here? How about this one? If I have glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, then why is it that infection is the most common thing that precipitates hemolysis? You answer the question. The answer is right up there. You have no NADPH, which means you have no functioning oxygen-dependent myeloperoxidase system, which means you would be susceptible to infection, which would set off the hemolysis of the red blood cells. Correlation right there. Ooh, this is pretty cool. Yes, it is. All right, so let's talk about some diseases so that we can get some. We have chronic granulomatous disease of childhood, which is sex-linked recessive. So what does that mean? Who gives it to the boy? Mommy, who's an asymptomatic carrier. Okay, remember, both female carriers, both, uh, both females, okay, remember you have 50 of the females, all of the females of a male with a disease okay, are, are asymptomatic carriers. And they transmit the disease to 50% of their sons. Okay, I used to teach a genetics part, but I have no more time to do that. But I put all my genetics notes in my high yields because they really were high yield, big time. It looked like you had pretty good genetics in there. I looked at that, that part. It looked good. looked good. Okay, so in chronic granulomatous disease of childhood, they're missing an enzyme, NADPH oxidase. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do they have, what's the NBT type dye test show? It's abnormal. It doesn't show uh, color of the dye. So what's, what's the, what are they missing? The respiratory burst. So do they have superoxide? No. Do they have peroxide? No. Do they have myeloperoxidase? Yes. Do they have chloride? Yes. So, if some bacteria that they phagocytose in a neutrophil or monocyte could make peroxide and, put, and, and add that to the inside that phagolysosome, would that be all that this kid would need to be able to kill the bacteria? Yes. We have myeloperoxidase. We have chloride. 
What these kids are missing is peroxide because they have no NADPH oxidase. All living organisms make peroxide. That includes all bacteria. But not all bacteria contain catalase, which is an enzyme that you already know breaks down peroxide. And so we run into that microbiology question that's always asked in relationship to chronic granulomatous disease of childhood. What can they kill? What can't they kill? They can't kill stab, but they can kill strep. And the reason for that is, is staphylococcus is not only coagulase positive, it's catalase positive. So if this was staph aureus here, when it makes its peroxide, and it will, it also will release catalase and neutralize it and so the kid can't kill the staph. And it will kill the kid. But if this was a streptococcus, which is catalase negative, and when it makes its peroxide, as any normal bacteria would, it doesn't have catalase, and so it's adding what this kid really needed to make bleach, and so this kid can kill strep. So kids with chronic granulomatous disease of childhood can kill strep, but can't kill staph. And it all has to do with which one of the bacteria are catalase positive, staph, which one's negative, strep. Classic board integration, Tanya. Classic. Now, next question is, let's keep this here. Myeloperoxase deficiency has been added over the last year to the boards. Do they have a respiratory burst? Think before you answer. Of course they do, because they have NADPH oxidase. Okay, do they have peroxide? Yes. Do they have superoxide-free radicals? Yes. Do they have chloride? Yes. Do they have myeloperoxidase? No. <laughs> okay. So they have a respiratory burst, a, a normal NBT dye test, but they can't kill the bacteria. Why? Because they can't make bleach. Okay. So what would we call this type of defect? We have oxygenization defects. That, can, that would be things like globulinemia, missing IgG. There are certain C3 deficiencies also. That'd be an oxygenization defect. We have certain defects that are chemotactic, where, where the cells don't respond to chemotaxis. Then we have cell, then we have defects in microbiocidal defects. That means ability to kill bacteria. Chronic granulomatous disease of childhood and myeloperoxidase deficiency are both microbiocidal defects. They can't kill bacteria, but for different reasons. And uh, myeloperoxidase deficiency is because they can't make bleach because uh, they're missing the enzyme, but they do have a respiratory burst. Whereas in chronic granulomatous disease, they can't make bleach either, but they have an absent respiratory burst. So that's the main difference between the two. Plus, myeloperoxidase deficiency is not sex-linked recessive. It's autosomal recessive. The next board question is the kid whose umbilical cord doesn't fall off when it should. And then it's removed surgically, and they say that histologically it doesn't show uh, neutrophils uh, within the tissue or neutrophils lining the uh, small vessels. So that's an adhesion molecule defect. Now, they can sometimes just say adhesion molecule defect. Sometimes they say a beta-2 uh, integrin defect. Uh, sometimes they put that because integrins are adhesion molecules. But whatever it is, the umbilical cord needs to have an inflammatory reaction involving neutrophils, so they have to stick in order to get out. 
Okay, so they, they can't stick, they can't get out, and you can't get rid of your umbilical cord. That's a classic adhesion molecule defect. All three of these things have been on exams, big time. Must know. Okay, now you should be familiar with all of these already, but just as a little review, uh, what's the king of the chemical mediators of acute inflammation? Histamine. All right. What does it do to arterioles? Vasodilates them. What does it do to venules? Causes increased vessel permeability. Good. Serotonin, what amino acid uh, makes it this? Tryptophan, very good. Is serotonin a neurotransmitter? Yes, some of you are deficient in it right now. So what do you have? Depression. <laughs> those of you that look like norepinephrine, you're a division in both of those suckers. Okay. Since I'm manic depressive, I got, you know, I just got old piles of stuff. Okay. Anaphylotoxins, name me. C3A, C5A. Big deal. That's, that is memorization. What role do they play? The anaphylotoxins means what? That they stimulate mast cells to release what? Histamine, which causes vasodilatation and increased vessel permeability. Do you think they may even play a role in shock? I think so. Because if you activate the complement system, those two suckers are going to be there. You're going to have those dudes around. Okay. Bradykinin we talked about, C3B we mentioned, prostaglandins, most of them increase vessel permeability and dilate. Leukotrains, remember those are, uh, we'll show you those in a second. Nitric oxide will be on the test because that's big time now. It's made in endothelial cells, other places too, but mainly endothelial cells is a potent, potent vasodilator. In fact, they've synthesized it and it's used in treating things like pulmonary hypertension and stuff like that. It's a big one now. You'll see that it plays a big, big time role in septic shock. Big time. Endothelin, no. Interleukin 1, yeah, that's one interleukin you want to know. Okay, because that's the one associated with fever. Interleukin 1 is a pyrogen. It stimulates uh, the hypothalamus to make prostaglandins, which stimulate the thermoregulatory center to produce fever. Okay, and so you can see why things like aspirin work in producing fever because they inhibit prostaglandin synthesis. But in this case, the prostaglandin is located in the hypothalamus. Okay. All right. Factor 12, forget. Guys, can you picture this? Can you picture this up here? And maybe have A over there, B over here for that enzyme, C over there, D for that enzyme, E for that. Okay, maybe this one over here, I'd probably put F. Mm, G over there. Okay, and then I'd say platelet over here, and then you put uh, e, uh, whatever we're up to now over there. And then they'll say endothelial cell, and put another letter there. And maybe even go down here. They could have up to Z on this sucker. And all kinds of things they can do with this to screw you up. Okay? So, corticosteroids. Where would you point? Right there. Inhibits phospholipase A2 which means you don't release arachidonic acid from phospholipids, which means you make neither prostaglandins or leukotrains. That's why it's the, that's why it's the supremo, I mean supreme, uh, anti-inflammatory agent, because both prostaglandins and leukotrains are blocked by blocking phospholipase A2. And then remember your omega-6 fatty acids that can make arachidonic acid linoleic, not linolenic, that's omega-3. 
That's the one you want to eat every day in walnuts and fish oils because they act like aspirin. They block platelet aggregation. That's how omega-3s protect your heart. They just act like aspirin does. They inhibit platelets from aggregating. Okay, then you know about xylutin as a drug that blocks 5-lipoxygenase. Then you have other ones that block the receptors. Okay? Those really weird ones. Zarfroloost, whatever, whatever kind of crazy things that begin with Z. Okay. Then you got LTC4D4E4, the slow-reactant substance of anaphylaxis. These are the things seen in bronchial asthma. They're potent, potent bronchoconstrictors. And so you can see why xylutin works so great in asthmatics because it's blocking all the leukotrains, including those suckers. You already know that LTB4 is uh, adhesion molecules and chemotaxis. We go over here. Okay, what does aspirin block? Cyclooxygenase. Okay. Irreversibly or reversibly? Irreversibly, if we're talking about a platelet. Okay. And then we come down to PGH2, where everything seems to derive from. Okay. PGI2 is made in the, uh, the endothelial cell. And that's why it's called prostacyclosynthase. And this is the archenemy of thromboxin A2 made in the platelet. Okay? Thromboxin A2 is a basoconstrictor, bronchoconstrictor, platelet aggregator. PGI2 in the endothelial cell is a vasodilator. Okay? And it inhibits platelet aggregation. It's the archenemy of thromboxin A2. Drug blocks this, please. Name me. Thromboxane synthase. This drug is also used in doing non, uh, non, uh, 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 it is used in doing stress testing for uh, coronary artery disease. Dipyramidal blocks thromboxane synthase. Okay, dipyramidal. And you can do that as a, you know, so where they don't have to do the uh, exit treadmill thing. You can do a dipyramidal stress test. This is, blocks this and blocks thromboxane A2. This right over here is this famous PGE2. This is famous for as a vasodilator in the kidney. This keeps a little fetus as patent, ductus patent. Okay. Um, this is what makes your mucus barrier in your stomach so that you don't uh, end up with ulcers. Big one. Women, this is the little dude that causes dysmenorrhea, primary dysmenorrhea. It increases uterine contractility and has been made as an abortifactant to express uh, fetal uh, material. Okay, so there's a lot of good board questions here, all of which I've summarized in my notes. Lots of form in this one. Remember, how work, maybe uh, make sure you know how your COX-2 things work. Okay. All right. Corticosteroids. I already mentioned one of the things why it's a fabulous anti-inflammatory agent. It blocks uh, phospholipase A2. But what else does it do? It decreases adhesion molecule synthesis along with other steroids like epinephrine, norepinephrine. Now, I want you to think. You decrease adhesion molecule synthesis. What would that do to the neutrophil count on the CBC? It increases it because you remember from immunology that 50% in a white person, 50% of neutrophils are already stuck to the endothelium of small vessels, and 50% circulate, and that's the one we measure. So if you decrease adhesion molecule synthesis, then those ones that were already stuck are now circulating, what would you do to your white blood cell count? Double it. And what do you know that corticosteroids do to B cells? 
destroy them. They're lymphocytotoxic. You want to know by what mechanism? It starts with an A. P. There you go. Cortical steroids decrease your B cell count. That's any B and T's, both, by apoptosis. It stimulates it and it destroys. In other words, the cortical steroids are the signal for who to kill the cells, the caspasases. All right. What do they do to the eosinophils? You already know what they must do because we know we use them in type 1 hypersensitivity reactions. So what must they do? Decrease them. So when we are on corticosteroids, what's the only thing increased? Neutrophils. Mechanism. Decreased adhesion molecule synthesis. And what's decreased? Lipocytes and eosinophils. Very good. Can you think in reverse? If you had Addison's disease, what would happen? Come on, come on. Do you have cortisol? Yes or no? No. So what happens to the neutrophil count? Decreases. What happens to the eosinophil count? Increases. Good. See, that's how you can take information like that and then start applying it clinically. Do you ever wonder why a person who has a myocardial infarction always has the 18,000 CBC, most of which are neutrophils? Mechanism. Epinephrine, there you go. And what does it do to adhesion molecule synthesis? Decreases it, boom, neutrophil count goes up. Oh, I think I'm getting this a little bit. Good. All right. They love electron microscopy of the inflammatory cells. Therefore, I have provided them on the screen for you, for your enjoyment. Isn't that cute? He provided neutrophils and stuff on the screen. That's a neutrophil. That's the electron microscopy. Now, usually on an EM, I didn't, couldn't find one that had, it'd have another lobe or two in there, okay? To make, what do you think this thing is with all this garbage in it? It's a phagolysosome, okay? And it's got little bits and pieces of things in there. So that's a neutrophil. That's an electron micrograph. I haven't heard of, the, of them doing that one yet. But this one I have. And they did it in the lung. And they had next to it a type 2 pneumocyte. And they wanted you to identify the alveolar macrophage. That's a no-brainer. You see all these little black dots all over the place. Those are lysosomes. <laughs> okay? That's the, that's the macrophage. Okay? I'll show you what a type 2 pneumocyte looks like when we do respiratory distress syndrome. And I'll show you what the lamellar bodies look like. Lamellar bodies are the structures within which lecithin, and phosphatidylcholine is located. Because if they ask what the macrophage was in there, what do you think another one's going to be with that same slide? Which one makes surfactant? You see? There you go. This is a monocyte, guys. Now it's kind of a grayish cytoplasm. And this is what it looks like by electron microscopy. Usually a single nucleus. And you see all this garbage in the cytoplasm. You know that that has to be something that scavenges around. This can form a foam cell, by the way, in a natural sclerotic plaque because it can phagocytose oxidized LDL. Did you know oxidized LDL is free radical LDL? And what vitamin neutralizes oxidized LDL? Vitamin E, very good. But this one's kind of easy. I, I'm not an electron microscopist, but this is a lymphocyte. And if you see a, an electron micrograph and it's all nucleus with very little cytoplasm, uh, that's a lymphocyte. But just for fun, play odds on what that lipocyte is, okay? Choices, CD4T, CD8T, B cell. 
Play odds. All right, play odds T versus B. T, 60% of the peripheral blood and lymphocytes are T. Now what's normal ratio of helper, which is 4, to suppressor, which is 8? 2 to 1. So play odds on which one this would be. Helper T cell. Then it would be more likely a suppressor T cell, and then the least likely would be B cell, which would be only account for about 20% of your cells. So any cell that has a, just all nucleus is a lymphocyte. Okay, now this should be very easy. What's all this crap over here, these little things that look like a thumbprint? That's rough endoplasmic reticulum. What does rough endoplasmic reticulum make, please? That's the ribosomes on it, which make proteins. So this cell likes to make proteins, like immunoglobulins. So what do you think it is? Plasma cell. There you go. So the one that looks like it has, looks like a fingerprint in there with all these ribosomes in it, it's a plasma cell. This is multiple myeloma. Notice that the nucleus is eccentrically located. Notice also the cytoplasm is always sky blue. Makes plasma cells real easy to recognize. But they're the ones that have the most ribosomes because they're always making protein. What did a plasma cell derive from, please? A B cell. There you go. And where would they be located in the, in the, in the follicle, please? In the, oh, I already gave it away. In the B cell, please. Germinal follicle, very good. Okay. Number one and number two. We're not talking about going to the bathroom. Okay, number one has granules, which are the same color as RBCs. Number one is a? Eosinophil. Number two has got granules that are more purplish and darker. Basophil. So if you're not colorblind, it's easy to tell a neosinophil from a basophil. Neosinophils have a red color that's similar to the color of red blood cells, whereas basophils have more darker colors. Now, this is a neosinophil. Know what's in those granules, guys? Crystals. It's the only inflammatory cell that has crystals in its granules. And you even know what the name of them are in the sputum of, a, of an asthmatic. You even know what the name of it is. What is it? Chocolatin crystals. And what they are are degenerated eosinophils in a sputum of an, of, a, of an asthmatic, and they form these little crystals that look like spearheads. And they come from these crystals here. Ooh. What's the mechanism for killing invasive helmets? Let's see how good your microbiologist was. Type 2 hypersensitivity. And who's involved in it? Oh, yeah. From who? Major basic protein. I mean, major basic protein could be the major involved in this, in this thing. Remember that. Remember the schistosome the schista eggs that you saw in that, in that biopsy specimen, remember? What were they coated by? IgE antibodies. What do you think? What kind of receptors do eosinophils have? IgE. And so they hook into those IgE antibodies, and they release their chemicals. And the big one's major basic protein. And that destroys the helmet. But that's type 2 hypersensitivity because it's a cell hooking into an antibody on a target cell. See, where you get confused with type 1 hypersensitivity in eosinophils, eosinophils isn't the, isn't the effector cell for type 1 hypersensitivity, guys. Who's the effector cell? The mast cell. And what do they release from their purple granules? Histamine. Eosinophil chemotactic factor. So they were invited to the area of, of the type 1 hypersensitivity. What is their purpose in a type 1 hypersensitivity action? 
What is their purpose? Their purpose is that they also have histaminase in them, and they have aryl sulfatase, which neutralizes leukotrienes. So the real purpose for eosinophils in a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction actually is to knock off some of the chemical mediators producing the, uh, the type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. But when it kills, an eosinophil kills an invasive helmet, it does so by type 2 hypersensitivity. That's not a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Okay. Cluster designations. Just for fun, just to get you involved, because some of you look like you're in myasthenic crisis at this time. Okay, I want you to pick out the one for helper T cell. Four. Uh, cytotoxic T cell. Eight. Uh, the marker, the antigen uh, recognition site for all uh, T cells. Three. Good. Uh, the antigenic marker for histiocytes, which would include longer Han cells. One is correct. Very good. The uh, marker for the most common leukemia in children. That was asked recently, and that really irritated me because that's memorization. The answer is 10, and that's the Kala antigen. Remember, you talk about the common ALL antigen, positive B cell leukemias. Well, that actually CD10, believe it or not, and that was on some kid's exam. So I added it to my notes. So when I taught the New York thing a couple of months ago, was it there? Yes, because I knew about it then. But the one before that, no. So they're going to get it wrong? Likely. <laughs> Okay, 1530 actually is a great Sternberg. CD21's been asked. I think it's dumb. It's only on B cells, and there's a virus that hooks into this receptor. Name me. Epstein-Barr virus. It hooks into that receptor, CD21, on B cells. Actually, the atypical lymphocytes are not the B cells. They're T cells reacting against the infected B cells. Ooh. Burkitt's lymphoma is a B cell lymphoma, guys. Not a T cell lymphoma. CD45 is on all leukocytes, so it's a common antigen on everything. These are the most important, in my opinion, cluster designations that must, you must know. Isn't it nice that you don't have to go beyond this? I would think so. I would like that. Fever must be important because I designated one slide to it. Who's responsible for fever most of the time? In a leukin one. And it worked, remember, the apostagnase. In fact, it's PGE2 again. That's what the hypothalamus is making. And then that stimulates the thermal regulatory center. Is fever good? Say yes. Yes, it is. Did you notice that you told me that it did what to the oxygen dissociation curve? Right shifted it. Why do we want lots of oxygen in our tissue when we have inflammation? Oxygen-dependent myeloperoxidase system. So when we give antipyretics to patients that have infections, is that right? No. Because we're thwarting a mechanism for getting oxygen to the neutrophils and monocytes to do what they do best. Whoa. You're really getting into this, aren't you? Yeah. Also, hot temperatures in the body are not very good for reproduction of bacteria and viruses. So we're not just talking about bacteria, we're talking about viruses don't like high temperatures. That actually is a, is a mechanism for killing them. Not a good idea to give antipyretics. Now, if you've got a kid with a febrile convulsion, that's another story. 
But I mean, 103 temperature, 104, forget it. Forget it. It's, it's killing bugs, bacteria, helping neutrophils do their thing, monocyte do their thing, getting lots of oxygen to tissue. 105, that's what I'm thinking about. Maybe lowering a little bit. Fever's good. Okay, types of inflammation. This is the most common. I, I, the reason I put this one here versus some other type of suppurative inflammation is because it's been asked on boards. This is a postpartum woman. She's got pus coming out of her lactiferous duct organism, Staph aureus. And the, uh, so this is an example of suppurative inflammation. Okay, here's, here's a bone in a child that had sepsis. Okay, and we see in the metathesis of bone a yellowish area, which turned out to be all an abscess. So what is this? Uh, osteomyelitis. Organism. Staph aureus. Let's say the kid had sickle cell disease. Organism. Salmonella. Very good. That's very good. SS is not good because it's actually salmonella type of urium. Okay. Why is it the metathesis of bone? Because that's, that's where all the blood supply to the bone goes. So what does that tell you about the mechanism of osteomyelitis? Hematogenous. So it comes from another source. Then it gets to bone. Ooh, this is cool. Yes, it is. I agree with you. Okay. Hot. Spread out over the face. Cellulitis. Organism, if you play odds. Strep. Pneumonia or group A strep, strep pyogenes? Pyogenes. There you go. So this is erysipelas, an example of cellulitis. Now this one they love right here. Now here's the way I would ask this. Okay, in fact, Friday, my kiddos had their first path exam. This was the last picture on it. Okay? And it said the type of uh, uh, necrosis noted in this patient would be analogous to the type of necrosis in which the following. And I had Clostridium difficile, Clostridium perfringens, and some other stupid things. What was the answer? Clostridium difficile, because this is diphtheria, and this is a pseudomembrane. Carinobacterium diphtheriae, guys, a gram-positive rod, and it makes an exotoxin, which screws up riboxylation of proteins, elongation factor 2, that's what the toxin does, and the toxin damages the mucosa and submucosa producing a pseudomembrane. The bacteria doesn't invade, it produces a toxin that damages the membrane, so does Clostridium difficile. And it also produces a pseudomembrane and a toxin, which is what we measure in stool to make the diagnosis. So the answer was Clostridium difficile. Okay. Did they get it right? 100%. 100%. That's the pseudomembrane of the theory. Ooh. Okay. All right? What's this type of, uh, of uh, inflammation called? That so-called bread and butter pericarditis? What's this called? Fibrinous. Fibrinous type of inflammation. Usually due to increased vessel permeability. We see this in lupus. This would be the most common heart lesion in lupus. So you'd have a friction rub. We see this in the first week of a myocardial infarction. Then six weeks later, called Dressler syndrome. We see it there, too. We've seen what Coxsackie infections, which is always asked on boards. Okay, this is a third-degree burn, and this is a blister, and I just happened to show that. What's the most common organism-producing infection in third-degree burns? Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Very good. What's the color of its pus? Green. Due to? 
thiocyanin. Oh, this is good. This is even before lunch and you guys are still awake. This is so incredible. At least some of you are awake. Not all. Okay, believe it or not, they had something similar to these schematics on someone's exam, which I couldn't believe. And they wanted you to add them labeled A, B, C, and D, apparently. Of course, they didn't have granulation tissue pointing to them and scar and all that kind of stuff. And they asked, what was it? They asked something about which stage, God, it was pretty simple, actually. They said, which, which of the following was the stage within which there's a seal in the, in, a, in, the, in the wound, in a primary intention wound? The answer was B, okay? Well, I know what it was. I think they had, it wasn't this type of thing. They had different things showing. They had uh, uh, something going over the top of a clot, underneath the clot, like you see here, and I have no idea what the other ones were. Uh, what this is showing is that the basal cell layer on both sides of the, of the cut, okay, proliferate, and they go underneath the clot and, make, and, and seal it. They don't go over the clot. They go underneath it. They've actually had a whole diagram and a whole series of things to pick that out. That was kind of weird, I thought. So when do we seal this uh, this uh, primary? Let's say this is a this is a, someone that had an appendectomy. Uh, by 48 hours, this, the wound is sealed off because the basal cells have, have formed the seal. The key for healing of a wound is the presence of granulation tissue, and there is a protein, guys, which is a very important pro uh, proteoglycan, uh, and that's fibronectin that's involved in uh, the healing of a wound. Fibronectin is uh, an adhesion agent. It's a chemotactic agent and invites all the people around there, like fibroblasts, to help uh, in the healing process. Granulation tissue starts on day three, and it's really at its prime on day five. You ever have a scab on a wound and you picked it off, and it bled like mad, and you pressed on it, and it bled like mad? That's the granulation tissue. Some people call it proud flesh. Women that are pregnant can get them on the gums called pyogenic granulomas. It's basically granulation tissue. No granulation tissue, no healing uh, a wound. Very important. Fibronectin, very important. Name the type of collagen, please. Responsible, initially, type 3. So we already know two collagens already. Four, and where was that located? Basal membrane 3, and where is that located? In the initial stages of wound repair. Okay, what's type 1? That's the good stuff. That's nice and strong. Highest tensile strength, tendon, it's in um, bone, uh, skin. Uh, and tendons and ligaments. It's very strong tensile strength. Okay, now what happens after about uh, over the ensuing weeks and months uh, to the type 3 collagen piece? It gets broken down by collagenases, type 3, and there's a metalloenzyme. That's the, the, what is the, what trait element is actually an enzyme associated with the collagenase that helps convert type 3 into type 1 collagen piece? Zinc. That's why zinc deficiency commonly produces problems with wound healing because it's a screw that screws up the collagenase. You've got to replace the 3 with type 1. Now, what's the maximum tensile strength that you can get in a wound by 3 months? 80%. What's the most common cause of, of poor wound healing? Infection. What's this patient have? Oh, no, that's not it. Wait a minute. Where is it? Where is it? What's this patient have? Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Defect, please. Collagen. It could be in synthesis, breaking down, or whatever. Ehlers-Danlos. Okay, would you have poor wound healing there? Sure. Now, I don't have a picture now, but you will see one another time of another disease where the defect's in fibrillin, 
which is an elastic tissue. What's that one? Morphans. Both have screwed up wound healing. Lastly, before lunch, in a uh, patient with scurvy, what's the defect? Defect is in hydroxylation of two amino acids. Name them. Proline and lysine. Okay. Do you happen to know um, why that's important to hydroxylate proline and lysine with ascorbic acid? What makes the, remember, it's, it's a triple helix, remember? Okay? Now, what makes those triple helixes stick together and form the tensile strength? Cross bridges. Cross bridge. When you cross bridge things that you want to increase the strength in, that gives the strength to them. Cross bridging. Lysyl oxidase is the enzyme. Copper is the cofactor for that. Well, guess what the cross bridges hook into, what they anchor into? They anchor into those places where you hydroxylated proline and lysine. And so you have weak, abnormal collagen and scurvy because there's no cross bridges. The cross bridges can't, can't attach to anything, and so it's weak collagen. You therefore can't heal wounds. You end up with hemorrhages. You end up with hemarthroses, all those terrible things associated with uh, vitamin C deficiency. So you've got to know more than hydroxylating proline and lysine. You've got to know what that means. That means that the collagen that you make has weak tensile strength. Why? Can't cross bridge. Okay, we'll finish off the inflammation uh, at 1 o'clock. Okay, we were talking about scurvy, I think, last. Not to be confused with scabies, that's a different disease. <clears throat> this top <clears throat> picture here is what granulation tissue looks like. I think you can see it's got a lot of blood vessels. Okay, that's because of the basic uh, fibroblast growth factor. You see a lot of um, inflammatory cells in here from platelets to, uh, not platelets, from the beta, uh, uh, plasma cells and lymphocytes. Very, very rich vascular tissue, and it's absolutely essential for normal uh, wound healing. Uh, you all know what this is? Keloid, you know. They'll make the big deal between the hypertrophic scar and the keloid. That's all baloney. Basically, uh, a keloid is, uh, or hypertrophic scar is, a scar is just an excess in type 3 collagen deposition. Okay? And it causes these uh, <clears throat> two more looking types of lesions on the skin. As, uh, in terms of keloids, there is a genetic predisposition. We see it very commonly in the black population, but... Uh, I, I've got keloids pretty uh, pretty much too, so it's it can it can have some genetic uh, uh, increase. Now this is a white little child here. What do you think was the underlying cause of this kid's uh, keloids? Third degree burn. Now as, uh, they've been hitting a lot lately. The relationship of squamous cell carcinoma to uh, scar tissue and third degree burns. Uh, there was one that uh, caused a lot of people, I'm sure, to get this one wrong. They had a, they said something about a chronically draining sinus tract in the skin, and they tried putting antibiotics on it and didn't work. This uh, ulcer, a little ulcered lesion on the out, on the orifice of this chronically uh, draining sinus tract. They said antibiotics didn't work, nothing worked. What is it? The answer is squamous cell carcinoma. You see, there's a lot of turnover that goes on in this scar tissue. And I gave you the impression that, you know, type 3 collagen is converted over into type 1 collagen. Well, that means fibroblasts are involved, and there's cell divisions going on. And whenever you have cell divisions going on, there's always a chance for mutation and cancer, and it's usually squamous. So I want you to remember, 
that uh, squamous cancer is very, very common in the setting of uh, scars related to third-degree burns. In fact, big time, big time. And also from chronically draining sinus tracts, like you see in chronic osteomyelitis, right at that orifice of the draining sinus tract. There's a lot of hyperplasia of epithelium going on there, and it predisposes to squamous cell carcinoma. So they've been hitting that over the last year, year and a half on that particular concept. So I figured I would share that with you so you get another point on the test if you happen to get that question. Okay, chronic inflammation. Let's compare acute with chronic. A lot of good immunology here. What's the main immunoglobulin of acute inflammation, please? IgM. Wonder why that is? At least I think the reason I think it why it is is that, you know, you need a lot of complement components, don't you? Like C3A and C5A and C3B and all those different complement components uh, involved in the, in the healing process. And uh, what's the most potent activator of the complement system? IgM, and why is that? It's got 10 antigen recognition sites. The pentamere. And so all you need is one IgM. Boom, you got that classical pathway. And it's going to go from one to nine in terms of the complement cascade. IgG requires two of them to activate the uh, classical system, and it doesn't go beyond C3. I bet you, I only found that out recently, actually. I thought that, you know, when you activated the complement system, it went from one to nine, period. No, 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 no. If it's activated by IgG, it only goes to C3 and stops. Okay, so it doesn't go down to five and six, seven, eight, and nine. And so... Uh, you're not going to get your C5A, which is part of the, uh, you know, the anaphylotoxins, and C5A was important as a chemotactic agent with IgG. And so IgM is the primary one we see in acute inflammation initially, not IgG. But then, you know, after 10 days to two weeks, there's an isotype switching where that same plasma cell that was making IgM, you splice out the Mu heavy chain. Remember, it's the heavy chain that defines the specificity of an immunoglobulin, and it splices in. Uh, a gamma heavy chain, and all of a sudden the same plasma cell is making IgG. So it's not a question of different cells making it, it's the same one was making M now makes G by uh, isotype switching. And then IgG is the uh, primary immunoglobulin. But IgM first, then IgG later. Chronic inflammation is a very, very brief, maybe a couple hour phase of IgM, uh, stim, but then it goes right to IgG immediately. So the main immunoglobulin of chronic inflammation is IgG, not IgM. The cells are different. Acute inflammation, the key cells are neutrophil. Now, of course, we're talking about the standard types of, of infl acute inflammation. It's neutrophil. Uh, if you're talking about an allergic, an acute allergic reaction, what's, the, what's the, one of the key cells you see? Eosinophils, very, very commonly. And, of course, mast cells are in tissue, so you're not going to be seeing those. And if we're talking about viral infections, what's the main uh, acute inflammatory cell? Lymphocytes. So, you know, the, the main actor can be a little bit different depending on the type of acute inflammation. But as a rule, it's, uh, it's uh, neutrophils. Then when we talk about chronic inflammation, then we're talking about uh, the monocyte and macrophage as being the key. We're going to see plasma cells, a lot more plasma cells and a lot more lymphocytes and tissue. We're not going to see pus. Pus or exudate is not a characteristic of chronic inflammation. That's a characteristic of acute inflammation. Basically, when we have that increased vessel permeability and we have emigration of neutrophils into interstitial tissue, that, that protein-rich fluid, which is greater than 3 grams of protein per deciliter, and that cell-rich uh, fluid is called an exudate. 
which basically is pus. That's what pus is. Okay, produces the two more of acute inflammation. You're not going to see an exudated chronic inflammation. Okay, so I think those would be the big difference: difference in immunoglobulins, difference in cell type uh, as well, and uh, absence of exudate. I just put a picture of chronic cholecystitis as a good example of chronic inflammation. But here's another good one, and that's the granuloma. When you talk about granuloma, there is no such thing as an acute granuloma. Uh, it's going to be, maybe that needs a little, I can't focus from up here. Can you see if you can get that bottom one a little bit better than that? Or maybe it's just not good. That's good. Thanks. This is a granuloma. This is a, a <clears throat> portion of lung that was split in half like that. So that's one half of it. That's the other. And so uh, this is uh, caseous necrosis for someone with TB. I want to take you through the formation of a granuloma. They're easy to identify, guys. You don't have to be a pathologist to identify this. If it's roundish and pink, and the key thing, you see multinucleated giant cells. Guys, it's a granuloma, period. Don't even think twice. They're not going to say, what is this? That's one-step reasoning. They're going to say, what's the pathogenesis of this? The answer is type 4 hypersensitivity. Okay, uh, delayed reaction hypersensitivity. So we need to know who the main actors are in that. But some of you may not realize that cytotoxic T cells, when they kill, let's say, neoplastic cells, or they kill virally infected cells, that's also type 4 hypersensitivity. There's no antibody involved in that, is there? So that's another type of type 4 that you oftentimes forget. You always think granulomas, type 4. Well, yeah, well, how is that going to explain poison ivy? Okay, poison ivy actually is a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction, not type 1. Right? Uh, so those are examples of delayed reaction hypersensitivity. So here's the way it works. We use TB as an example, droplet infection, you recall. The alveolar macrophage is phagocytosis it. Nothing happens. The alveolar macrophage takes it on a tour all around the body. It's called the lymphohematogenous spread. Still no problem. It's kind of introducing the tuberculous organism to say, hey, there's an epididymis here. Would you like to come here? That looks pretty interesting, but no, I'll pass on that. Well, it kind of takes a little trip, but meanwhile, that little macrophage is doing what macrophages do best, processing antigen. It's been processing that, that TB organism or whatever else it's been phagocytosis, processes antigen. Then after weeks or so, it presents it to who? A helper T cell. So the key actors in delayed reaction hypersensitivity are macrophages that process antigen, and then they're going to present that antigen via their class 2 antigen uh, sites uh, presented to helper T cells. Now, helper T cells are going to release all those cytokines. The ones that are involved in the granuloma are gamma interferon and the macrophage inhibitory factor. Other, there, are other, there are other cytokines, like interleukin-2 and other kinds of things that have different functions. But those, the ones that really are involved in granuloma is gamma interferon and macrophage inhibitory factor. The gamma interferon is going to activate the macrophage to kill the TB, the cryptococcus, the histoplasmosis, or whatever other types of things that macrophages normally kill. Okay? So it's the gamma interferon that actually is the trigger for the macrophage to kill those organisms. The macrophage by itself cannot kill it. But when it gets activated by gamma interferon, it does kill it. Okay? And since systemic fungi and mycobacterium have a lot of lipid in the cell wall, we get a caseous necrosis. Now, all these pink staining cells that you see here are epithelioid. Remember that term oid means looks like but isn't. 
They're not epithelial cells, they're activated macrophages. So an epithelioid cell is an activated macrophage. It's been activated by gamma interferon. When they die, they die in style. They basically fuse together and they form multinucleated giant cells. It's kind of like their gravestone, in a sense. That's the way I look at it. Also helps us dumb pathologists to recognize the granuloma. <laughs> we see them, you know. Oh, this one, okay, but it's granuloma, okay, all right. And so those are those are also just fused epithelioid cells, macrophages. A lot of also the black dots that aren't pink would be the helper T cells in this. So the two main actors in a granuloma are helper T cells, CD4, and macrophages. Now the first part of the story here, in terms of uh, uh, the there's two, there's two subsets of helper T cells. There's subset one and subset two. Uh, subset one is involved in, uh, in uh, type four in this uh, type of uh, hypersensitivity reaction. Uh, macrophages have an interleukin called interleukin 12. And when a macrophage secretes interleukin 12, it causes uh, the, the subset one helper T cells, it, it activates or it presents the antigen to them. Okay? And so what they turn out to be the subset one uh, CD4 helper T cells, they become the memory T cells of the event. Uh, they're the only ones that can retain memory of this thing. It's interleukin-12 that actually made that, uh, that connection with the memory of the uh, antigen experience uh, with that particular subset. Okay, and that's how, that's how there's memory of the fact that you have been presented with TB at some time in your life. The subset one... Uh, helper T cells that, that are involved in that. Interleukin-12 was important in that reaction. Okay, so most people in their first, if their first primary uh, disease, uh, usually recover with no problem, and they get these granulomas, oftentimes become calcified dystrophically, and you can see them on x-ray, but don't be fooled, uh, like I was at one time, thinking that a calcified uh, uh, granuloma and uh, someone with TB, everything has to be dead in it. And I even decalcified it for three months in this decalcifying solution formalin. And I cut through it eventually. I said, there's no way I can. You look at all those cases and necrosis. They must be dead as a doornail. And I converted. I mean, that doesn't mean religiously. I mean, I, mean, I had a, a TB conversion. Okay. So they are incredibly, incredibly resistant to dying. That's why most cases of uh, react, uh, most cases of the secondary TB, or reactivation TB, their reactivation of TB that was already there in some of those calcified granulomas you still have hanging around there. So most is reactivation. So let's explain a positive PPD then. Okay, how does that work? That's purified protein derivative. Okay, so you inject it into the skin. A little bit of this purified protein derivative. Now who is the histiocyte or the macrophage of the skin? What's the name of that cell? Langerhans cell, basically a histiocyte. So what's their marker? Cluster designation, one. All histiocytes, macrophages, are cluster designation, one. So some longer Han cells, those dudes that have berbic granules that look like tennis rackets on electron microscopy. They are the macrophage histiocyte of the skin. So they phagocytose that purified protein derivative, okay? And they process it very quickly, actually. And who do you think they're going to present it to? They're going to present it to that helper subset one that has memory of previous exposure to that protein in the wall of the mycobacterium. And so it hooks in by class two antigen sites, as, as all immune cells do. 
And the, once it gets presented with this uh, pro purified protein derivative that's been processed now by the longer Han cell, the, the helper T cell releases cytokines, producing the inflammatory reaction with the induration, which we call a positive PPD. Okay, so that's how a positive PPD works. A good correlation with this thing would be, what about older people? Well, older people usually don't host a very good type 4 hypersensitivity. And so oftentimes they have uh, less of a brisk response to a uh, to PPD. Sometimes you have to actually do uh, a double type of uh, PPD uh, testing on them. So they have a less of an immune response. What about a patient with AIDS? Well, isn't it the helper T cell? That's the main thing that's decreasing, huh? So they may not get any reaction and yet be a, basically a culture medium for the organism. Can you, would they, would a person with AIDS have a granuloma, a tissue? Not impossible. It's impossible. There's no helper T cells. There's not enough of them to be able to to uh, to uh, form this granuloma. That macrophage inhibitory factor, which I didn't mention, actually keeps the macrophages in that area, and that's why you get a very localized granuloma. And so, when you got HIV and your helper T cell counts decrease, uh, you don't form granulomas at all. And that's why you have basically TB organisms, mycobacteria, maybe are even more common than MTB, all over the body. No granulomas. No granulomas. That's because the helper T cells are decreased. When they, when you do PPDs on them, you accept five millimeters. There's enough to cause, if you got a five millimeters in duration, that's enough to say it's positive because that would be a pretty good immune response, uh, um, for a patient that's HIV positive, uh, to PPD. Okay, so I just wanted to mention uh, those little, uh, corollaries with this. So, you must know how a granuloma forms. And, what I told you is the way it works. And a positive PPD, you need to know how that one works too. Okay, reactions to injury, heart. Unfortunately, its reaction to injury since it's permanent tissue is scar tissue. Does scar tissue contract? No. So the more damage you have to your free wall of your left ventricle, what do you think is going to happen to the ejection fraction? That's your stroke volume divided by end diastolic volume. Goes down. Because fibrous tissue doesn't contract. There's some stuff happening now where they can get uh, um, cardiac muscle to go into the cell cycle and divide, and that's pretty uh, pretty cool stuff. They found something that's beginning to work on that, so we may have something that will prevent that from happening in the reasonably near future. Uh, kidney, how does that react to injury? Same thing. It's going to form scar tissue. Uh, if I had to ask you which part of the kidney is most susceptible to, let's say, ischemia, what would you say? Medulla, and if I ask you what specific parts of the nephron, ooh, you had renal physiology, what's the most susceptible part of the nephron to tissue hypoxia? I'll give you two, I'll give you, uh, what do you think? Well, actually two places. Probably numero uno is the straight portion of the proximal tubule. Why? Because as most of the oxidative metabolism is located in that. That's the part that has little brush borders and all that stuff. That's where most of the reabsorption of sodium and, you know, the reclaiming of bicarbonate, all those different things, you know, the proximal tubule does just about everything, uh, is in that straight portion of the proximal tubule. That's considered the most susceptible. A close second, however, is the, is the uh, medullary segment of the thick ascending limb. I'll show you a picture of a nephron somewhere down the pike this afternoon. That's where the sodium-potassium-2-chloride co-transport pump is, where uh, Lasix, loop diuretics block, okay? 
that area, that thick ascending limb in the medullary segment, is supposed to be a very close second for uh, uh, getting destroyed with in tissue hypoxia. So the straight portion of the proximal tubule is number one, and the thick ascending limb medullary segment with that very, very important pump, the sodium potassium 2-chloride co-transport pump, is located. Just for fun, you had renal phase, yes? What's the pump do? Generates free water, guys. Free water. Remember, uh, in your urine, you have two kinds of water, obligated and free. Obligated means it's obligated to go out with every sodium, every chloride, every potassium. That's basically 20 mLs of water has to go out with every sodium. We're not birds. That just has, you know, concentrated urea. <clears throat> That's it. Okay, can you imagine a bird that had actual urine? Okay, would have a tough time flying up there with a full bladder. Okay? <laughs> okay, so it just kind of concentrates it down. It don't need any free water. But we do. Because that's the only thing that antidiuretic hormone can reabsorb or get rid of. is free water, not obligated water. And that pump generates free water. So if I just, just for fun, just to make sure that you understand this concept, this is all I'm going to even talk about this, because I, I get the feeling that you didn't know that, some of you. Um, free water is a very important concept, guys, and I don't have time to do, to, uh, to go over that aspect and, and path, because i got other things even more important than that. I already told you you need 20 mLs to get of, of, of obligated water for every sodium, every chloride, and every potassium. It's obligated. So how do you think you're going to generate water that isn't obligated? Well, you're going to take the sodium and the potassium and the chloride away from its obligated water. And that pump does it. That sodium potassium two chloride co-transport pump. Okay, I just reabsorbed one sodium. How much, how much free water did I leave behind in the urine now? 20. I just reabsorbed uh, one potassium. How much more do I have now? Another 20. I'm up to 40. I just reabsorbed two chlorides. How much do I have there? 40. So how much, by reabsorbing a sodium, potassium, and two chlorides, remember they balance each other in charge, got two positives and two negatives with the chloride, how much free water did I generate? 80. That's how it does it. And that's the pump, that's the pump that Lasix blocks. And that's in the thick ascending limb medullary segment. I'll show you a picture. You have one in your notes, not in the path notes, but in the physiology notes. I go through renal phase. That's the part that students have trouble with. All right. Lung. Who's the repair cell of the lung? The type 2 pneumocyte. It can even repair type 1s and replace them. What is its other function, please? It's, it, it, it synthesizes surfactant. Very good. That's the type 2 pneumocyte. So that's the repair cell of the uh, lung. Central nervous system. The astrocyte. The astrocyte uh, proliferates uh, because it is a stable cell. It's not a neuron. It can proliferate and it produces the, uh, you know, increase in their protoplasmic processes. That's called gliosis. And that's the reaction to injury in the brain. It's an astrocyte proliferation, kind of analogous to the fibroblast laying down type 3 collagen in a wound. Okay? The astrocyte just proliferates and so it has more of these little processes that stick out. And that's its reaction to injury is that one. And then the peripheral nervous system, and this you'll have to do on your own, Wallerian degeneration. Big time board question, guys. You cut a nerve in half, what happens? You know, what's the role of the Schwann cell uh, and all that kind of stuff? That's that stuff you should have had with some other uh, lecturer uh, during your board review. But if you didn't get it, it's right there at the end of that chapter, the 
the mechanism of how an axon regenerates itself, that covalerian degeneration, when you cut a big nerve in half. So that's the reaction of the peripheral nervous system. Just for fun, common board question. What is the analogous cell in the central nervous system to the Schwann cell? The oligodendrocyte. What do they both have in common? They both make myelin. Schwann cell in the uh, peripheral nervous system, oligodendrocyte, central nervous system. Very good. Anybody know a tumor of the Schwann cell? Schwannoma. Okay. What's another name for that if it involves the eighth nerve? Acoustic neuroma. Very good. And... What genetic disease, which is autosomal dominant, has an association with them? Neurofibromatosis. Very good. Are we sharp in this room? Say yes. All right. Okay. Don't say, no, I don't know the answers to these things. Well, uh, now you do. Okay. <laughs> Look at it in a positive thing, not a negative way. There's a lot of things you don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know. I learn something new every day. And things I should know I forget. Not good. But, so, you know, just don't get down on yourself. Just say, hey, didn't know it, now I do. And the more you can, re, you know, re reinforce it by going over stuff, the more it's in your head. The less you reinforce it, it's gone. <laughs> it is off in space. Okay? That's how some of you are getting to look towards the end of... This morning's session. This afternoon will be even worse. That's why I've, been, I've had uh, tensilon injections uh, put into each seat. When, those, uh, when both eyelids droop, you're going to feel a little sharp prick in your little buttocks. Okay? And uh, your myosinic crisis will have ended as we increase acetylcholine in your synapses of your eyelids. I just gave you the whole concept of myosin. Isn't that cool? All right. Even my jokes have something to learn from.